Okay. Hello, and welcome to uh, the next episode of the complete Stanley Kubrick. This is uh, this is kind of a big one, um, but uh, before we uh, jump into it, we should probably introduce the other people who are here. I'm not the uh, I'm not the lone uh, passenger on this voyage. So let's start with uh, my co-host Travis Nathan Trudell. Hello, Travis. How you doing today? Hey, how's it going? Thank you for waking me from hypersleep so we could record this uh, podcast. Oh yeah, I was feeling kind of lonely, so I thought I'd uh, thought I'd uh, nudge a few of you guys awake uh, for the ride. Um, and uh, we do have a third person on here, a, a guest, and uh, I'll let him introduce himself. But uh, David Blakesley, hello. How are you, Matthew? I'm very good. I'm really happy to be. Uh... Uh, well, for one, not hosting today. <laughs> I get to be a guest, but uh, really excited to be talking about this particular film and really appreciate the invitation to join you and Travis on The Complete. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you have a long, uh, long history uh, with this movie in our circles. Um, you've uh, written extensively about it, and uh, you even recorded an audio commentary for uh, for this movie, um, which we'll get into a little bit. But um before that, uh, if you could just uh, introduce yourself to yeah, uh, the sure. audience. I think most of the people who are listening to this probably know you already, but you've been on a certain, certainly a breakneck pace uh, with your hosting podcast duties, as you just referred to. So if you want to uh, let people know a little bit about what you've been doing recently, that would be great. Sure, sure. Well, I'm David Blakesley. I'm a blogger and podcaster based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, since 2009, I've been doing a project called Criterion Reflections, which started off just as a kind of a movie journal. I would just write little short bits about movies that I was watching, and I was going through the Criterion Collection in chronological order. And that led to an affiliation with Criterion Cast, where I started doing a series on the Eclipse series of DVDs, the box sets, and I uh, got into kind of you know joining them as a guest on various podcasts, and then. Trevor Barrett and I did a podcast called The Eclipse Viewer, where we went through all of the uh, currently available titles in the Eclipse series, and we're going to be reviving that shortly, as uh, the Eclipse series seems to have had a bit of a resurrection. Hooray! Lately. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> pretty exciting. So yeah, so Trevor and I formed a pretty good online friendship uh, you know, several years ago, and we kind of saw that project through to at least one stage of completion, and now we're taking it to the next level. And then uh, this past fall, I... Uh, I, I changed my Criterion Reflections blog, uh, which had you know had reached the year 1969. I turned it into a podcast, where I've been enlisting a variety of guests. Uh, Matt, you were there with me to talk about uh, that was the Romer film, right? Uh, we did yeah, uh, my night at mods, right? And uh, really, I just look for people who are interested in the particular films, and I'm just continuing to go through them kind of chronologically again so criterion reflections is the podcast it's hosted on the criterioncast.com website and uh, i am right on the verge of completing the films of 1969 uh, but like you said last year i was or you know 2016 i was doing the films of 1968 and i uh, started publishing the blog on the criterion cast website and when i got to this particular film 2001 a space odyssey uh, I decided I would just uh, kind of change up the, the sequence a little bit here, and rather than writing a traditional blog post, I just sat down one morning and uh, queued up my mic and did a one-shot standalone commentary track uh, as, as I watched the movie and spoke my thoughts into the microphone, and 
so it's out there in the archives. I, I suppose you'll probably put a link to that in the show notes. And I've listened to it, you know, here and there. Uh, I did not listen to it again prior to this episode. I didn't want to get too self-conscious about uh, repeating myself or whatever. But uh, it was a it was a very fun experience. I think it kind of gave me the confidence to say, yeah, I can I can host a podcast. So that maybe played an influence in what I've been doing more recently. But yeah, this movie's been a huge, huge part of my life. I saw it as a young kid uh, back in 68, which probably I would have been like six years old going on seven. I don't know exactly what time of year it was that I saw it. But I do remember my dad taking me and my family, my sister, my mom, and I to see it somewhere in Detroit. I think it was the roadshow version. It was in Cinerama. I remember this big, wide wraparound screen. And, you know, I was uh, just a kid, just wide-eyed, very much into the space program, NASA, you know, the Gemini, Mercury, Apollo projects had all sort of been there in the background of my childhood, and the Apollo uh, program was underway, still quite a ways from landing on the moon, but that's the well, that was the trajectory, and I was just this, uh, you know, literally starry-eyed kid that was all into space and the cool technology, and uh, my dad took me to see this movie, and even though so much of it, you know, sailed way over my head, just the spectacle and the sensory experience and the mystery and the awe and the wonder of it all just absolutely, you know, transformed me. I really feel like it was a kind of a life-changing experience, and this film has been with me at different stages of life ever since. And so, uh, yeah, this is this is the film that I will say is my favorite movie ever. I, You know, I, I think it's a credible, greatest movie of all time, just in some objective, historic, uh, aesthetic, artistic sense. But uh, there will never be another movie that can, you know, outperform this one in terms of, you know, it's sort of formative influence and how it's been sort of a companion piece uh, for me through so many stages of my life and watching it in so many different contexts and situations. So uh, this is just another great experience here to, to talk about it with a couple guys who I know uh, dig Stanley Kubrick and have some cool things to say. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Well, thanks for that that wonderful setup for the movie. Um, uh it's, um, we'll definitely talk a, a lot more about um, just sort of the experience of going to see this movie in the 60s and, and, and also just the, the whole idea of, uh, of a dad taking his whole family to a movie like this. It doesn't, uh, doesn't happen very often anymore, unfortunately. They, they go to uh, very different kind of movies these days, uh, and, the, and this was the highest grossing movie of 1968. Uh, which is pretty astonishing um, when you think about it. Well, I think um, the tickets were a little bit more expensive than the usual, and I, re- I remember right. my mom kind of, you know, chewing out my dad because you know we couldn't afford this, and why are we spending <laughs> all this money to go see this fancy movie that I think my mom didn't really quite get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and to uh, and just uh, so people listening at home know. Um, don't go out looking for the uh, the Criterion Blu-ray of 2001. It was uh, released as a laser disc. Um, so as of yet, uh, there is no uh, there is no Criterion Blu-ray of this movie. But you never know uh, that things uh, things could change. But that's why it fit into your uh, your chron- chronology. And your show is uh, is really uh, really lots of fun to listen to. It's great to hear different perspectives and different voices um and just uh how you you really go deep you're not just covering the spines or the uh the eclipse series you're you're on the on the filmstruck channel on the laser disc uh every everything that you can uh get your hands on so yeah, uh, yeah. i do recommend it to anybody uh, who hasn't uh, started listening to it yet 
No, thanks. I, yeah, the next episode is going to be like short films, things that don't have a date but were released in 69. So, yeah, I'd definitely like to dig into the crate there. You bet. And so beyond, uh, I, I assume, uh, considering your age when you saw 2001, uh, that this was your first Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, I was wondering if you could <laughs> yeah, talk a yeah. little. I, I doubt you. Uh, I doubt you. You dug into Paths of Glory at three or four. Um, I was so. a strange love head at like three years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it was. Um, you know, I had no idea who Stanley Kubrick was. Obviously, the name registered as I got a little bit older. Um, I remember, like Clockwork Orange, reading about that the the Mad Magazine version, a Clockwork right. Lemon <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, Kubrick was definitely there throughout my teens. You know, The Shining was huge, uh, Full Metal Jacket and all of that. So yeah, I, I definitely had a, a bond with, with Kubrick, you know, from a young age. Do you feel like you separate this film considering its sort of lofty personal status for you? Do you feel like you separate this film from the rest of his filmography? It's kind of a, a different different beast to you? Or do you feel like it? you see... A lot of of this film in in his other movies and connect with them on a personal level as well well this one here i think does really stand out in a unique way um because the themes are so incredibly vast i mean it, it just encompasses to me at least it encompasses all of life you know and the whole question of existence and destiny and and purpose and and all of that stuff so the scale is you know incomparable compared to the, his later films but there's certainly through lines and you know Kubrick himself is a you know, completely fascinating artist because you know he kind of summarizes with each film you know some grand concepts and then he sort of says okay I've done that let's try a different angle and he just never repeats himself and and yet with each film he goes deep and and uh there's a progression and all of that as well so yeah this one here is is definitely a standalone and not just from his work but really from so many other films even other science fiction films which it, it has influenced which i know we'll get into some of the the legacy of this film uh, a bit later on as well so yeah this is just a a, a one-of-a-kind uh experience and, and relationship that i have with with a film uh, above all others cool well thank you for for that um i think we should uh i think we should get into the movie now but um travis uh i thought maybe i could pass the baton to you for the introduction of kind of what kubrick uh did in order to um make this movie uh after dr strangelove uh because it was a it was a long process uh so do you uh do you want to uh set us up for this uh this monumental movie uh, sure. Um, <clears throat> so after, uh, after making, uh, Dr. Strangelove, you know, he was, uh, thinking about wanting to do something in the realm of science fiction and he, uh, he contacted Arthur C. Clarke, um, based on his, uh, n uh, short stories, The Sentinel. Um, it's something that he was, uh, really interested in and he decided to, uh, work with him in making something, uh, wholly unique. He wanted to do something very different, break all the tropes of all the science fiction movies that came before it. Because, um, uh, as he says in many parts of the interview, he never really liked science fiction. Uh, you know, just the whole, the whole genre itself, the B movie aspect of it, uh, adventures in space, going from planet to planet, shooting aliens. 
But what he did really like was this concept of some greater intelligence, something bigger than us out there that uh, he could explore. And with most of the things Kubrick does, he really, really enjoyed the technical aspects of how this stuff would work in reality. And so he, uh, he spent many years crafting how to achieve the special effects, uh, working through a script, uh, many name changes, um, and, you know, many different stages of, uh, working through the process of what, uh, what would become a rough cut that he would then alter once more. Um, yeah, he, uh, it was, it's very interesting because his, uh, you know, reading reading about what what drew him to this idea and to this project, um, it it, it kind of carries into a lot of the other themes that have worked in his previous works, but it distills them down to just this, you know, why are we here? What are we doing? And how can we become better? Um, all of his other films, there's this concept of how can we become a better person? How can we become better as humanity? How can we uh, move forward as, as humans? And this is a uh, movie is solely interested in that purpose. Um, and the hardest part and the thing that took the longest for this whole film was just building the tools to be able to tell this story exactly how we wanted to tell it. And that's the uh, that's one of the greatest achievements of this film. Not only is this film just a spectacle to watch, just an amazing, immersive, uh, all-encompassing journey. Um, the journey to make this film and the technical aspects of it was just astounding. The stuff, the breakthroughs he made in uh, developing certain cameras, developing certain techniques for the effects. Um, front projection was a huge one. Um, like, it's just... He just basically looked at every single thing that had been done before and said, I want to do it differently. So it is wholly unique and stands out um, and is basically completely his vision. Um, going through the credits of that film, you see that, like, you know, all the special effects were designed and created by him. Like, he gave himself the big title card that uh, says that everything that was basically fantastic in this film was designed and made and. And, you know, constructed by him, which, you know, that's how Kubrick works anyway. Usually everything about this film is his. But um, in this respect, like he really did. He he spent many years just developing how we can do this. Many techniques that had never been done before. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, as we go through the film, we can talk about like certain uh, tech, you know, not only just the. Uh, the story and the structure and the themes and the you know the deeper aspects of the film but we can also talk about the uh incredible technical achievements that he created uh to create those effects to create this world because i will say like even 1968 you know even now there's stuff that's happening in that film that i'm still just completely mar in marvel of um it wasn't until I saw this recently in 70 millimeter up at uh, the Somerville Theater that I figured out how the pen was floating. 
I've seen this movie like 15 times, and up until that point, I had no idea how he was making that pen yeah, float. Yeah. And then that's when it like it dawned on me. I saw just a little bit of, uh, because it's a nice 70 millimeter print, I saw just a little bit of uh, of dust on the glass that rotates with the pen stuck to it. Like it's just, and it's absolutely amazing. It feels like it feels like a magician doing these magic tricks, but the story is so engrossing. Um, and the mood and the tone of the piece is so engrossing that it's not about those tricks. It's not like, you know, come see the new Star Wars. We shot it all on HD, and so it becomes the thing. There was none of that. This was just come see this movie and be in awe of its uh, m- magic. Like, I can't, I can't, you know, as much as, uh, you know, I think the definition of what magic is is, you know, technical things that haven't been discovered yet. Like this movie does have the sense of true movie magic. Like this is everything has been in service to make it the most realistic experience you can have. And I find that to be absolutely fascinating. But I think Matt, you you or David would probably have a better uh, read on what was going on in the world at that time that this movie was being made, the history um, behind it. Cause uh, I, I just got so sucked into the technical aspects of it <laughs> that mm-hmm. I didn't, uh, I didn't go into the deep history and the, uh, the uh, cultural and political things that were going on at the time this movie was being made. So if one of you two want to jump in with that, I think that'd be fantastic. Well, I, I, I think one of the first things that, it's important for people who are uh, our age and younger to remember about this movie is that the first clear picture of Earth from space was taken in 1972, which means that the creation of the view of Earth in this film was entirely uh, a hypothesis and a guess. and it's a it's a painting um, that was made uh, and used uh, for for those scenes with Earth in the background, and it's pretty good. <laughs> I don't yeah. think that anybody watching this movie today would be distracted and think that's not Earth down there. I've seen Earth, and that's not what Earth looks like from space. Yeah, it doesn't uh, look like a globe floating on a string. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, some of the fifties <laughs> sci-fi. Yeah, exactly, um, and. And, uh, and that's pretty amazing. I mean, if you look at it close, you you can, you can see that, 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 uh, that it's not an exact, uh, picture, but I think the fact that they were able to pull that off is very fascinating, but I think even more fascinating than that is the idea of seeing this movie and seeing earth from space and never having seen it before. And I, I don't think that we, um, as people that grew up um, and were born after uh, man landed on the moon, um, I don't think that we can fully under- appreciate um, what it was like then. I mean, there were still people, there were still spaceships on their way to Mars at this point. We had not explored the universe in the ways that we have explored it at this point. The only views of Earth that they had before this were blurry black and white photos. It basically looked like, uh, you know, an out of focus cell in a microscope. 
Well, you, you um, know, you, you did have orbital spacecraft. I mean, the, the Earth had been orbited yes. by many Yes, and there, were, there, were, there was space. Yes, there were, there were people in space by this point, for sure. But in terms of what we had seen, the photos that we had gotten back, um, what people on the ground had experienced was um, basically completely in the dark. And, and they knew, you know, that there were people in space but it was entirely in their imagination that they were creating what that experience must have been like. Mm -hmm. So when we go to watch a movie like Gravity today, we've seen everything that there is in a movie like Gravity. And, and, it, and so it's kind of more about the bells and whistles of the camera movement and the CGI and things like that. But we know what's going on there, and we've seen all of these visuals before, even if they're not, you know, even if we haven't seen them technically done in that way. And so I think that's the, just the first thing that people um, who, who are younger need to remember about this movie is that the, people had never seen anything like this before, um, you know. And, and I think that's really a, a, a remarkable feat that they achieved, that not only were they able to, to present something as, as um, amazing as that for its time, but that it still visually speaking holds up today. I think another really important piece, and I'll, again, I'll speak from the perspective of a child of the 60s, is that there really was a kind of a naive, uh, innocent uh, perspective that scientific technology was on this kind of inevitable upward, you know, inclination, like that, that space travel, and uh, that was the new frontier, you know, moon bases and orbiting space stations, and you know, colonization of planets. Uh, I, I guess I grew up in a very sci-fi friendly household. My dad, you know, read Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, Heinlein, you know, all the, you know, Sturgeon, all, all the big names of uh, 60s era science fiction. But even, even in like elementary school, even in kind of just the way I was being educated was that, you know, technology was going to promise this future of, of progress and health and prosperity and and continuous advances and and certainly we've seen amazing things happen with technology but this idea of you know man's destiny to, to colonize space and to inhabit new worlds and exploit the resources of other you know bodies in the solar system and all of that really felt like that's just how things are going to go um Maybe there were more cynical adult, you know, minds or, or people thinking, ah, we really can't afford to do all of this. But there really was, I guess, on a popular level, this optimism that, uh, you know, this this next level of, of progress and, and, and human conquest of, of other planets was just a matter of time. And I certainly bought into that, and it was just really cool to see what it might be like on these spaceships and and really conceptualizing you know by the time i'm an adult by the time i'm you know uh able to do this i will orbit the earth and i will visit the moon and i'll take a vacation in space and and you know at that time 2001 was like this magical year the new millennium this new era uh mankind was poised to sort of take it to the next level and i think kubrick was really tapping into that zeitgeist uh both the optimism and then the inherent you know pessimism that things may not be that they're all cracked up to be but i think that that notion that uh, some of these things were technologically not even you know feasible but but really we were on our way 
to that kind of a future, um, that was a very broadly embraced idea, at least by a certain segment of the community. And so, uh, you know, 2001 wasn't seen as like this fanciful dystopia or anything like that. It was like, yeah, this is kind of, you know, this is where, where humanity started and this is where we are and this is where we're going. And there's this, this graceful sequence that's being kind of, you know, forecast out there uh, that even in this kind of technological, uh, not not a paradise, but certainly this this quest that we're on, uh, there's signs of trouble. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, those are the deeper themes. And, and again, as a kid, I didn't really pick up on that so much, but it was just the coolness of these spaceships and the screens and the lights and the and the different types of craft and how they all connected with each other and the mysteries of what we might find once we get off the surface of this planet into new spheres and and uh yeah all of that so yeah let's let's get into it and you can tell that kubrick also shared that same uh that same hope that we would be heading out to the stars and doing more work in space i mean to the point where the pragmatist in him also took out an insurance claim in case they did discover aliens or aliens reached out to them so it would insure his movie so people would in case like they had discovered aliens before his movie came out <laughs> it wouldn't ruin his box office cuz he would take out an insurance claim on it so people you know in case people didn't go see it because it wasn't factually true anymore uh, the stuff that he he did like that's how much of a you know hopeful but pragmatist. I mean that's a perfect summation of the type of person he is. There's a little bit of there's pessimism in everything that he does that is also fantastical and wonderful. So, well, and I think one of the remarkable things about the movie, um, and we'll jump into it uh, uh, real soon here, but I think one of the remarkable things about the movie is that it is in a lot of ways a deeply cynical film in terms of the idea of uh man man's nature and repeating uh that nature and reverting back to kind of the the basic um needs and uh and instincts of man uh regardless of the surroundings um and yet at the same time the film uh does not reject progress it doesn't it's not there to say that um we're just going to be repeating the same mistakes over and over again and and nothing will ever change um but it's in the relationship to the world rather than internally within man and i think that aspect of it is extremely optimistic and um is as you as you say david something that i think uh could only have come out of a a moment like uh this mid the mid 60s um where it seemed like the potential to harness nature and to uh, fully understand nature uh, was was right around the corner, and we were on the precipice of something that was even more remarkable than uh, the incredibly remarkable uh, accomplishment of putting a man on the moon. Um, and I think that aspect of it uh, is is really impressive, and the and the push and pull between that optimism and pessimism. Uh, or at least re- pragmatism, I think is a better word, as you put it, Travis, um, is uh, is one of the more fascinating things about the film. Um, 
but let's uh, let's let's get into it. I mean, I think the, the best way to go about this movie is to, uh, you know, as I kind of dug deeper into it, is to kind of uh, break it up into its four core parts, um, and and you know we can jump around a little bit um, within that. But I think uh, the first part is is the dawn of man, and it's this um, it's this concept of. Uh, the beginning of humanity and the the first leap essentially from um the uh just hanging out and uh you know doing what we can do to survive in nature and hope that we don't get eaten yeah uh, just an animal consciousness just you know filling my belly reproducing right you know, obeying those basic instincts and that's pretty much the sum of it just staying alive and putting that next generation out there (laughs) yeah and and i i think you know in my head and this is true i think of the film in general um i had really uh i had really built i hadn't i hadn't seen this movie in 15 years um and i had really built up this sequence as much more kind of ponderous than it is it's actually quite an economical sequence i mean it's really like they this is this is their world this is how they're living right now these are the thing, the dangers that they face, you know, whether it's, um, uh, from other apes that are trying to, uh, steal their water hole or, uh, from the, uh, the, um, the jaguars or cats that attack them, the leopards. Um, and then this is their society. They, they huddle together. They're, you know, they've got babies, they're, they're cleaning each other or whatever it is. Um, and then things get serious pretty quickly. It's it's only about a fifteen minute sequence, um, and I think uh, it's it's really the the visual storytelling on display is is pretty astonishing. Yeah, the uh, I mean, just I mean, from the opening, it feels like an alien landscape. Like the pictures that we're seeing of this world, we're in this dawn of man. Uh, you know, it kind of. Uh, takes your expectations because you're here to go see 2001 a space odyssey right and you show up and you have these alien landscapes and then realize that it's actually the beginning of our human history we're not in the future we're not on another planet we're on our planet at the start of time and uh automatically you know he he's found these places on earth that are just um absolutely stunning that a lot of people haven't photographed before and um he's showing you know showing us this stuff and then the first like kind of things we see are the remains and bones of animals including early human so right away we're setting up our our themes of just like uh, alien landscapes and death this concept like right from the first you know uh we're, this idea that we are mortal there is a mortality to us and there is an end we are like everything else so like david just said we're all animalistic we're in animals we're just we're the same as the tapers that here here they're running around with at this point we're not better than them or greater than them we are them we are on an equal playing field and then yeah like uh uh, the other thing that i noticed uh is the uh tribalism in the kind of like the huddling together for unity for safety um that's something that as the movie progresses, I think we start to, it starts to dissolve. So early man before technology relied on one another greatly for security, comfort, safety, 
Um, and I think that's, you know, family. The family unit is basically what this could be represented as, this idea of families being together and working together. And then as the movie progresses, we start to get away from that uh, slowly, um, which we can talk about as we move on. But, yeah, um, that fight happens at the pool, and then here we have our first uh, touch of uh, what this uh, movie is going to... Uh, uh, take us on which is the uh the monolith shows up yeah it's it's a wonderful moment i mean because yeah you have this really basic primal struggle you know uh foraging for every little root nut you know at a belief that you can find alongside your you know other species uh you know compatriots there but then all of a sudden technology intervenes this manufactured object this thing that isn't just naturally there due to geological forces from even millions or billions of years prior uh there's this shape this thing that has you know straight edges a, a smooth surface and it just appears and you know the the soundtrack of course kicks in with this you know really jarring almost disorienting kind of choral piece there and uh you know I don't know, you know, you can speculate, were the, were the uh, proto-humans hearing that noise, or was it just, you know, a way of sort of enhancing the experience? We don't really need to bother to settle that. But, you know, the the appearance of a manufactured thing, something that had been, you know, intelligently formed and constructed is kind of the trigger that activates thought, uh, a consciousness, if you will, into these into these, uh, you know, this small band of, of you know, ape men uh, that, you know, for whatever reason uh, are fortunate enough to encounter it. And, you know, they're just, you know, the, the energy, I mean, the, the, the actors in their, in their uh, outfits, they're leaping and bouncing and, and shrieking. It's just, it's so alarming. So, so uh, I, again, I go back to my childhood memory of just like, wow, it was just really kind of... Uh, invigorating just to sort of see this this uh, spectacle of, of energy and outrage and anger and curiosity all summed up in those in those early moments and and then from there uh the idea of forethought of cause and effect that you know i pick up this thing i hit it and i get a result it's like you know it's just, it's just kind of like this this threshold has been crossed and that's sort of the beginning of uh, intentionality and, and planning and the ability to anticipate and predict the future to a certain extent. And, and that is the, the unique aspect that, that, that still stands as a sort of a, uh, a division between humanity and pretty much you know, all the other life forms that we, that we know of, even though we do see signs of intelligence and sometimes even purpose and in species like dolphins and chimps and and others, uh, there's still this 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 uh, boundary that's been stepped over by humanity, and it's still one of the amazing mysteries of existence. Do you guys think? And by the way, uh, f for for the purpose of this discussion, we are ignoring the book um, <laughs> because it, it deviates in in numerous ways, and then it also explains things a little bit more. Uh, clearly, the the film has a lot more sort of um, mystical elements around it. Um, do you guys think that that the 
intention here or or what's happening with the monolith and this this next sequence of of the bone do you think the idea is that the the monolith uh transmits the the knowledge uh necessary uh in order to know that this that a tool or a weapon uh can be used um or do you think it's more the uh the idea of this um this mystery um that appears um prompts curiosity or investigation in yeah. <laughs> the do you know what yeah. i mean yeah do no it's think? a it's a it's a great question are you done with that question or yeah i mean i think that's okay. basically yeah 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 be, well i think it's pretty crucial because when uh moon watcher i guess that's the name of the the lead right. ape character when he's holding that bone he has sort of a there's a flashback of the monolith with the sun coming over it it's not him seeing the monolith and then picking up the bone there, you know that that scene had happened just a few moments earlier but now he's got this bone and he's he's holding the bone and he's to, i interpret it he's recalling the monolith so i i i don't think it's the monolith making it happen although it's a that's an acceptable interpretation that an alien intelligence has come to earth and has sort of transmitted some kind of knowledge it's it's a it's a it's one version of the mythology i guess but he's thinking about the monolith and now he's striking the bone so that that's the connection there to me is it's it's probably more like he saw an object that somehow was different from raw natural forces and now he's going to try his own hand at that yeah i yeah i can I definitely see that. I, I but I, I I guess my my uh I tend to side on the uh this is uh like a higher higher beings interfering in the progression and helping to jump start uh this intelligence to move forward. Uh like uh yeah, I've always looked at it as like the monolith is is imparting some sort of knowledge to moon gazer or moon watcher. Mm-hmm. The one who, uh, the one who has the courage to touch it. Um, so there's that 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 aspect of uh, the the brave and the the ones who who look to seek for knowledge will be rewarded with something. Um, and so because of that, he is given this. Uh, it doesn't have to be like a straight up, hey, go pick up the bone, but just the uh, the idea of. Um, you know, there are tools that you can use to better yourself. Um, and then whether he uses the tools the right way, I, I, I don't know. There, that's mm-hmm. a part of me that uh, questions this, this, that part of the movie. And knowing how Kubrick works in his triangle of power and death and sex, uh, you know, that idea that the only way we can grow and achieve some sort of uh, you know, to change, we must become violent. To grow, we must kill. That idea that the only way to better ourselves is through the destruction of other things. Um, which, you know, the first thing he does is he picks up the bone and he doesn't pick up the bone and, you know, draw an image in the sand. You know, he doesn't go to art or he doesn't pick up the bone and, you know, 
you know, better, you know, cut a piece of grass or a bush or something, he picks up a bone and starts destroying everything around him. And so it's that idea that, uh, you know, it starts off into that, like, Darwinian, the strong, you know, survival of the fittest. And so because now he has a tool, he can then move forward to take back the watering hole and to kill, to kill someone and something to prove his power over everything, which then, you know, propels us into the future. Um, that direct correlation between that one first tool to what our tools have become when we do that jump cut into space. And so I, I do think, I, you know, that is, that is one of the things, you know, you say, uh, uh, strike the book from the record. <laughs> it's hard. If you've read the book, it's hard not to think about uh, the intentionality of uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick because one of the things that I don't uh, some people may not know this or or uh, or not but uh it wasn't that there was a book and then Kubrick made the movie together they they wrote the book as they were coming up with the movie and then Arthur C Clarke spun spun off a little bit and filled out some of the details a little bit stronger and so the book and the movie came out simultaneously um, there was no, yeah, it wasn't like there was a source material because they kind of worked on it together, which I find very, you know, I find fascinating because then that kind of just shows you the, uh, the strong difference between a writer versus a visual storyteller, which is what Kubrick is and how he, you know, got, got rid of all the things that directly point to answers and leaves us to be able to, even to this day in 2018 to discuss like what it is that all this means and that's i think that's that makes a more compelling uh, uh piece of art that that's why this movie i think stands the test of time is that it doesn't give you easy answers and it makes you think and it and allows you to grow and change uh personally but the movie still has all these questions that uh, you know, as you said, David, earlier that, you know, as you revisit the movie, as you get older and do things, it, it, it reflects a different way, almost like that black monolith reflects a different image to you every time you look mm -hmm. into it and helps you, you know, change or grow or think about, uh, you know, how you view the world. And I think that's uh, that's one of the testaments of this film. So, yeah, having different interpretations, I think, is is awesome. Yeah. That's what makes this movie great. Yeah. I mean, I. I just uh on on the the uh issue of writing the book and the movie simultaneously I, f I find it interesting um I mean they did come out the same year but um Kubrick actually made uh Clark uh delay the release of the book until after the movie and my guess is if he had his way uh the book would have never come out <laughs> um yeah. because i i think yeah. uh, you know and and one thing uh about the history of this movie he didn't want uh any of the miniatures or sets that he used to be used in any other movies and so he had them destroyed after the um filming was complete and i think this he would have felt the same way about the book because i i think he understood that if people read the book before they saw the movie there would be some frustration there in the sense of uh questions that were answered in the book not even really in in some cases being addressed in in the movie um and and i think you know he he knew rightly 
that this film was not about uh, telling people uh, what aliens were going to be like or <laughs> what what space uh, uh, was going to uh, reveal to humanity. Um, it was about your own personal journey through this experience. Um, and I think uh, that aspect of it um, is kind of why I've resisted reading the book. Um, and, you know, I know s some things about it, but uh, I, th I think, uh, you know, there, there were a few books that he, uh, he referenced through the uh, research and creating this script. And one of them had uh, a preface that was uh, one sentence and it just basically said, this book intends to uh, ask more questions than it answers. And I think, and you know, somebody told the story of that and how Kubrick loved that and laughed at it uh, all the time. And I think that was certainly his intention with this movie. It, it, it intended to, to ask more questions than it answered. I just want to go back to uh, Travis's um, comments about um, Moonwatcher's, you know, motives to, you know, use the bone as a weapon of destruction rather than as a weapon of art. And I think it's important, you know, as, just a thought that was triggered in the in those uh, excellent summaries there is that Moonwatcher had himself been humiliated earlier at the watering hole. If, if mm -hmm. you look carefully, it's the other tribe that sort of assumes control of the watering hole and Moonwatcher and his people are pushed right. away. So Moonwatcher has this motive of, of revenge and uh, even of pride and of ego, like, you know that that bastard showed me up <laughs> i'm gonna get mine you know and and that is just so so fascinating just to sort of you know recognize that this intelligence was triggered into you know actual beings with their own life experience and their own you know proto emotions and i think that's the other piece of it is that we are still shaped by our experience and that there is no you know ultimately neutral transcendent wisdom and so the the spark of intelligence is 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 activated within beings who have a, a have a history and they have a, a a response to the circumstances of their lives and you see that that thread continues because all of the characters even as minimalistic as you know plot may be in this overarching film they're all going through specific experiences that that trigger emotions that you know, influence how these newly acquired insights and, and levels of, of awareness uh, are going to be employed as as they kind of live out their experience in the in the real world. So, yeah, that that, that it's endless field of speculation out of what seem to be such minimalist elements here. I think is the is the preservation of mystery that makes this film, you know, uh, a a much uh, richer experience than just reading the book. I mean, as much as I appreciate a good sci-fi novel, and Arthur C. Clarke is one of the very best in terms of very intelligent speculation about where things could go or, you know, the classic sci-fi idea of, of taking a notion and extrapolating upon it in a very rigorous, consistent, extended uh, manner, uh, it's still kind of one guy's opinion. And it seems like Kubrick... Uh, has a gift here of just creating symbols and scenarios that, you know, are are endlessly uh, not only debatable, but you can just reflect on them at an individual introspective level and, and continue to see different nuances 
you know each time around yeah yeah and that's and that's what's amazing about the the fact that he chose to uh use just visual language at the beginning of this film uh he had the option i think they had a whole entire like uh uh, voiceover. That oh yeah, was going yeah. to you know they had all that stuff ready. He actually had and, like a panel of experts on paleontology, right? And, and all the yeah. I, they were going to sort of do a little, you know, narration type of uh, you know preparation for the audience, and it was like, no, yeah. let's let's just set that yeah, aside. He was gonna, yeah, a whole interview section at the beginning to show that everything that he's about to speculate on comes from some sort of fact. I mean, it's in you know in the fact you know. If we go to when he's uh, when uh, Moon Watchers uh, starting to smash the bones and starting to understand that you know when I use this to touch that this happens, uh, you also have that visual cue of he smashes the skull of the taper and then it cuts to a taper falling right. and dying, which you know makes that connection again and that's you know the second time that we've we've flashed you know he touches the bone it flashes to the monolith. He then uses the bone to do something. He smashes the skull. He flashes the taper. So it's almost like we're we're seeing the the seed and germination of thought of you know like you said causality the uh, how this affects that. And so from there you see him smash and smash, and then the next shot is him just devouring raw meat at the top of a hill with his bone in his hand and you know what he was you know what he's done right. we'll never go hungry outcome. again <laughs> yeah we'll never go hungry again and we can never go back you know and that's that you know if you want to get all nutritional that's the protein which then helps the brain get bigger which helps the brain start thinking in different ways and that was a big you know, a big evolutionary step as well. Yeah, and food is a running theme through the film. We'll we'll, we'll mm. visit f- food uh, in each of these sections uh, of of the film. Um, the voiceover is an interesting thing as well because this is the first movie in Kubrick's uh, filmography that features uh, no narration, um, and you know that's that's a pretty long stretch of films uh, to to rely upon that device and and. I think he absolutely made the right choice here. And I think he cut both the narration and the prologue because he partially because I think once he saw the film, he realized that he had succeeded at accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish in terms of uh, really producing a science fiction film that can be taken seriously uh, and that, you know, he didn't need that extra push. Um, And he does that throughout the movie in little ways. He relies on sort of established things whether it's the uh the brands uh the the sort of low low culture reliance of having howard johnson and bell labs and ibm in in the movie um or or the sort of even just basic idea of calling it a space odyssey using homer's uh um poem to uh, um, legitimize this as a serious journey uh, and exploration and not just, uh, first man in space, uh, and things like that. Um, you know, he, he very consciously did that in order to make the movie feel like it, uh, that it was not for, uh, no offense, David, six year olds. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and, and, um, and really, you know, uh, be taken seriously as a film. And I, I, I think once he saw that this Dawn of Man sequence, he, I think, sort of inherently understood that he had 
sort of done what he had been setting out to do. And I think there's something very uh, ballsy about, you know, this, uh, not just this movie, of course, which I think it's obvious how ballsy this movie is, but I think this particular sequence, the idea of like, you know, you establish with a few uh, shots in space uh, that, you know, here we are, we're science fiction, space odyssey, you're in the right theater. Um, and then all of a sudden, we're at the dawn of man, the beginning of uh, human history. I mean, it, and, and I think an, immediately we understand that we're, if we're not here to see something special, we're here um, because somebody wants to show us something that they feel is special. And I think that this, this stretch really um, establishes that. Um, there's one more thing that I want to get to before the, uh, the, the, the most famous jump cut in history, which is, uh, the, the front projection here and, um, the, the use of sets, um, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of his work on Spartacus. There's so, there's so many sort of multiple planes, uh, that come into play and the, the contrast between the, the back backdrops and the, and the foreground is really um, fascinating. And I think it underscores that alien world that you were talking about, Travis. But do you guys mm. uh, have any any thoughts on sort of what the world that Kubrick created here, either through effects or, uh, or sets? Well, it's a pretty stark landscape. And obviously there are many parts of the world that are much more lush and verdant and full of all sorts of wonderful delicacies and you know food sources and all of that so he is you know he is kind of putting out there the idea that humanity was birthed in a very hostile environment uh with very meager resources and and that's kind of remarkable um but i think it's also in keeping with the scientific understanding that human the human species did originate in africa and the earliest remains that I think were known then and are still known now do seem to come from pretty <laughs> barren, rugged landscapes, you know? So uh, that's just kind of a bit of sort of anthropological or archaeological information in there. I, I do want to go back just to some of the earlier conversation. I, I'm really appreciative of the fact that he didn't go into, you know, that prologue. I, I, yeah, I think of like Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which has kind of a you know, introductory statements. This is the most scientifically accurate film ever made <laughs> right. or, uh, about outer space, and it's just a comical note now because it's so ludicrous. But uh, yeah, he very wisely uh, held himself back from such pronouncements. Let the visuals speak for themselves. Yeah, the fact that he chose to tell the story visually, and then yes, seeing that he succeeded in doing so, I think is one of the strongest aspects of this film. In the opening. I mean, I don't think I've seen an opening that is, takes so many risks in the way that it is uh, setting up a film. Um, I think the only opening that calls to mind kind of like that sort of uh, just ballsiness of you know, no audio and nothing, like is uh, There Will Be Blood. It's like a half hour of like wordless, no dialogue, just landscapes and a man surviving. And that's kind of the same... You know, it wouldn't surprise me if that was some of the feeling he got was from 2001, which is just this rugged alien landscapes and this idea of survival. And like you were saying, David, like, yeah, we could have gone to a lusher, more, uh, you know, verdant area that would have uh, more opportunities uh, for these creatures to survive. And that makes me wonder, like, the reason why the this 
this uh, this monolith, this alien artifact, chose these people, and if this is the you know they wanted the strongest, the ones that are the toughest that could survive, that this is the ones they want to impart knowledge to, because they will be the ones who move forward and make changes and take those risks like there's all this like you know wonderful thing once you think about this aspect then you think about you know intentionality of this alien species that uh wanted to bring these bring us out of these dark ages so they could uh so they can connect with us in some way i would i i would hope that's my i guess that's my my optimism that it was it's a way to um you know, connect and to reach out and to help uh, pull us out of this, uh, you know, this dark ages and move forward into a, an enlightenment of some nature. I mean, there could be, you know, there's many, uh, many points that you can make that could say, well, maybe they're hoping to enslave us or they're, you know, <laughs> there's all kinds of ways this could go really dark, but I'd like to think there's an optimism to it. But uh, going back uh, to Matt's question, uh, the cinematography for this section is uh, groundbreaking. Um, the fact that, I mean, he was taking, instead of doing blue screen or luminance screens like they would do in a lot of sci-fi movies at the time, or instead of doing painted backdrops, um, you know, he wanted to skew all those things and do something very unique and very original. Um, and so he chose to take 70 millimeter photographs of these landscapes and then uh, front project them onto these uh, glass beaded curtains. Um, so the way that light works, you know, when it's reflected back, it's reflected back. Um, the way these curtains were built, it's reflected back at 100 times the magnif the, the, uh, the light output. So if you had like one foot candle of energy going into the curtain, 100 foot candles would be projected back. And so because of that, it's 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 able to feel like real landscape because light is emanating from the from the backdrop as opposed to us lighting the backdrop. It's a, it has it has a very unique and original feel like and then by putting partial sets in front of it and the way that uh, the camera works by, uh, um, you know, we're not reading the information on the uh, sets or on the characters because of the output of the light. It's just, it's absolutely fascinating. And it's set up, like, if you were there on the stage, if you weren't standing directly at eye line of the camera, if you were a little to the left or a little to the right, you weren't seeing anything in the backdrop. You were just seeing a curtain. So the, the, the way that this was set up specifically optically for a camera um, is, is fascinating. And, and no one really uses it anymore. Uh, this was a huge undertaking, and very rarely do they use front projection um, since then as well. He kept it very close to his chest on what he did um, because, you know, like, like you said, when he destroyed all the sets and everything, uh, you know, he was very much interested in being the keeper of these secrets and the keeper of these technologies because it was very, uh, you know, very uh, important to him to keep that, you know, this is where I think of stuff like uh, Georges Méliès, you know, like this magician who keeps their secrets to themselves but is then putting them on film to keep people in wonderment and amazement. And, you know, this is the type of technique that completely changed. Like, if, if you picture th these apes fighting in front of a painted backdrop or an obvious set or just out in, like, 
you know monument valley you know it it completely changes the uh the tone and the setting of the film but having these fantastic landscapes behind them it really does put you into the like into the mindset of of uh of this film it's 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 amazing it's an amazing melding of technology and visuals that kind of really really put you in their place and it only just gets more incredible as the film goes on so should we uh should we fast forward through all of humanity <laughs> yeah let's uh, let's jump cut to uh to the future let's, let's throw that bone <laughs> so uh as the bone is coming down as people have have mentioned it it, it cuts it to uh what um if you if you do any reading up uh is a is a nuclear satellite um pointed at at earth um but if you just watch the movie you you would assume it's just a us a satellite orbiting orbiting earth but it, it, uh we cut entirely through all of humanity in one uh in one cut and this is probably the most uh parodied uh moment in 2001 it's probably one of the most parodied moment moments in film period um and sort of iconic moments um so i i think we should say at least uh, a little bit about it is do you guys have any kind of thoughts either about the the choice to do this um or kind of what kubrick is signifying by making this kind of a uh, temporal leap it's weapon to weapon i guess is probably the most obvious you know yeah uh, and it is and it's just kind of that that you know object in space i mean from one to the other uh yeah it's 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 really brilliant it's it is you know one of those things let's like chess with death on the beach where you know it's it's kind of this awesome awesome concept that once it's registered it becomes the object of derision and scorn and mockery <laughs> but it's it's pretty pretty amazing and pretty cool to be the person who put this together and says yes we're going to put that on film and it's going to be uh, you know unforgettable and you know people are going to you know crap their pants when they finally see this uh, <laughs> and I, I i really it, it is it's amazing it's 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 like a it's like a you know 20th century mona lisa type of thing it's just wow it's there that's it it's and it just captures something that's a little bit beyond words uh it's just a it's a pretty cool little innovation one of many signature moments in this great film yeah it's uh i agree 100 percent with david it's tool to tool this tool to our newest tool and and it's that jump it's that leap it's that connection and it's also it's also telling the audience uh expect to be completely uh, have have your ideas of how we naturally progress through a story challenged um which is also important it's 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 another it's another part of his visual language that he's building you know he's saying don't you know there is going to be no shoe leather. We call it shoe leather when we're making movies. You know, if you got a guy that is like uh, walking from a, an apartment to a car to get us to the next location, and we have that in the film, it's just shoe leather. It's something that you're just wearing through to get us from one point to the next. It's Help the audience the make the connection. Yeah. Here we are, exactly. here, now we're there, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is, he's saying, you're not getting that. This is, this is going to be 
visually striking, visually new, and something that is going to challenge your expectations of uh, visual storytelling. And I think it's, you know, as much as uh, it probably uh, comes from a lot of experimental 1960s avant-garde stuff as well, I mean, I, I would have to assume he had been seeing some of the other works because a jump cut like this is a uh, is an artistic statement as much as, uh, you know, not so much and a storytelling device. It's something big and bold. And I'm sure in the editing room they were laughing maniacally and just like clapping each other on the back and saying, oh, man, if we get away with this, this is going to be fucking great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um I, I also think that, you know, it's interesting that, you know, after the uh, the the sort of machine ballet, as Kubrick calls it, which which we'll get into that they they cut from this from not just this bone and this satellite, both of which are uh, falling down um, to the earth, uh, you know, satellites slowly falling, obviously, um, to uh, to a pen floating in the air, this tool of knowledge, um, it. it kind of allows him to extend the the visual cue further um in this sequence and kind of play it out um into this uh this further uh exploration in this next uh sequence which is the moon sequence uh of the film because in a lot of ways that knowledge is the weapon being used in this sequence and uh you know the communication is not that different from the jumping around and yelling and uh, hitting people with bones <laughs> in the uh, in the first sequence. Um, here in this sequence, uh, you know, it's this, this sort of uh, abstract uh, roundabout way, which uh, we'll talk about. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because I think it's important to talk about this sequence here with the Blue Danube. Um, you know, the use of classical music in, in this movie has been um, one of the sort of more talked about things uh, for the film. It's obviously incredibly important. Um, but I think it's really interesting that he did call this a machine ballet because Kubrick uh, uses dancing quite frequently in his films. Um, there's uh, the, um, the ballerina in Fear and Desire, uh, the waltz in Paths of Glory, um, the uh, uh, Shelley Winters dancing in um, Lolita to sort of seduce Humbert. Um, and then, you know, the kind of erotic refueling in, at the beginning of Dr. Strangelove. Um, and then there's, there's more uh, later, obviously, in th films like Clockwork Orange and Eyes Wide Shut, um, all feature dancing. Um, I'm wondering uh, what you guys think about that um keeping in mind kind of the overarching themes of kubrick and and what you think how you think that ties into what he's doing um, particularly in this moon sequence both at the beginning here and with the the moon landing um how he's kind of uh connecting those concepts wow well to me the the whole blue net blue danube sequence and the floating pan it's really about escaping gravity or at least the typical terrestrial gravity mm -hmm. that we are used to living under um it, it's that floating sensation it's that 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 grace of of really being out in space um in the musical hair there's a song called floating in space which 
I guess, kind of, again, taps into that zeitgeist of what would it be like just to be, you know, able to float free? And it, it kind of gets into the sort of the psychedelia and kind of the, you know, uh, consciousness raising of this era too, which I know we're going to be getting into that sort of whole subtopic <laughs> as we go further as well. But I think, think to me, that was a part, again, going back to so many times I've watched this movie, that, that whole thing of just of just floating free of just being really in space with not necessarily having your feet on the ground other than through the the velcro boots and things that kind of keep us you know in our customary positions there but this that that openness that freedom that that uh, kind of that zero zero g feeling and and that transition away from the earthly body and into these kind of you know uh outer outer spatial realms there uh the the music has that lilting quality to it that just sort of lifts you up and sort of coasts you along on these on these waves it's it's so graceful and elegant and and perfect for for these sequences and and as you're you know with the rewatches and with kind of getting into it you're recognizing that the orion the the spacecraft that is uh, that is transporting Dr. Floyd to the space station is, is is synchronizing its spin so that it docks into that open slip there uh, without you know crashing and what a marvel of engineering that had to be. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's just to me it is it's it's graceful, it's beautiful, it's 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 technologically impressive. And uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just kind of part of that experience that just pulls us even further and further into this film. The use of that music just elevates what is occurring. I think there's a, uh, you know, is it's it's a mechanical it's a mechanical process. Everything that they're doing is very technical and very difficult. Like you know that the, you know like like uh, David was just saying the. Uh, the uh, matching the uh, the synchro the synchronicity of your spin so you can uh, dock properly you know that's the type of stuff that um, is a very it could be very stressful and you have to be very good at what you're doing to be able to achieve that and it does become this you know like the like the refueling sequence in Strangelove it is this idea of this like uh, romanticizing the mundane because if you think about it for air flight you know someone who's flying a plane every day from la to new york uh if you just have them do it it, it's a pretty kind of like it's an interesting process for the layman but at the same time it's just a process uh the thing that the thing that i most i think about a lot in this sequence is uh process films um you know like what it's like to be uh i think about kubrick's early like the seafarers or um, I think a lot about Sesame Street where they would show you how an eraser is made or a pencil and you're just watching like this process happening with set to classical or jazz music, something that kind of keeps the keeps it moving and adds a bit of uh, excitement and beauty to the process of this thing happening. And so this whole section, and I don't know, I, I would need to do a little bit more research, but I don't know if... Uh, this film is a starting point for a lot of documentaries in which they show how things are occurring or how things are working or if Kubrick is 
taking some of this feel of a documentary of like you know this is how a b-52 bomber gets refueled or this is how this ship moves cargo from one area to the next it has that feeling of a it almost feels like a like a documentary to me like that a, a process film like an episode of and mighty machines <laughs> it, exactly it's it, it's a language we understand so you're as a layman who doesn't understand space and has only seen fantastical tellings fantastical versions of space in which the docking sequence is the last thing they think about because they're too busy blasting aliens or uh, escaping from moon bases where he he wants to show you that the fantastical thing is that this is something we grow accustomed to and i just i find that stuff compelling because it it's we're wow but everyone in the movie is just kind of like this is normal and i i i i think it's oh man it's such a it's such an interesting way and approach to it and a lot of people call these like a lot of people that aren't fans of this film or don't enjoy this type of film call these sections slow where i find this part of the film like these parts are just fascinating to me just the technical aspects like you could have a voiceover of people like talking their way through what they're doing and i would still find it just as as uh intriguing but by pairing it to the ballet music the waltz um which was the song i danced to with my wife at our wedding which is also fantastic um but this was the like just pairing that together makes it so much more uh elegant in what it is so it's combining that idea of these are mechanical tools that we use every day but there is a graceful elegance to the way we can use them which goes in direct juxtaposition to the brutal way that moon moon watcher uses his tool the first time so not only are we seeing a a uh a first tool to a modern tool we're also seeing uh a very heavy-handed way of using a tool to a very delicate precise and uh nuanced way of using a tool so not only are we seeing that technology has changed we're also seeing that humanity has changed in our our way we interact with these things which i think is is just as important there's something very uh not very, but there's something subtly erotic about it too. You know, there, there's, mm. uh, and maybe it's just the, uh, the exoticizing of the process, but I feel like that's kind of where the, the dancing comes into play for Kubrick, you know, and this is a very, um, asexual film, both just in general, but particularly in Kubrick's catalog, um, that, you know, it, the, the needs of humanity in this film are, uh, sleep eating and killing people basically uh, you know and occasionally you, you want to play a game of chess or work out um, there's not uh, there there is no real um, sexuality at play um, in the in the humanity uh, of the film um, and yet these scenes do have this this like you like you're talking about like um, like delicate and graceful uh, movement to them that um, kind of make them feel uh, I, I mean er- erotic is kind of the only way that I can can describe it um, do you guys 
uh, think I'm crazy. <laughs> no, just perverted. No, uh, yeah. yeah. No, no, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the very phallic-shaped uh, Orion entering the slot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah I, think, I think you can definitely make those analogies without even, even the, uh, you know, Jupiter or the Discovery, you know, the kind of big spermatozoa there entering right. the big egg of jupiter and yeah, the yeah, Jupiter totally. space. yeah well that's the extension yeah. of it i mean that's right the, you know you're 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 dancing you know this is the foreplay scene i guess and then <laughs> the, uh, the realm of the infinite is the uh, the consummation um right. i did want to talk about uh that that aspect of filming the process though that you brought up travis because um i uh, I did want to to get to um, the Tarkovsky criticism of this film because I I think it's one of the more um, interesting and po possibly valid criticisms of the movie, um, which is basically what he says is uh, that the movie um, becomes about exoticizing the process or the technology in particular, as opposed to grounding the film in the emotional foundation of the characters. Um, and, you know, his, his example was basically, if you shoot a scene of passengers boarding a trolley, you, uh, if you shot it, if, if we had never seen a trolley before, you would shoot it in a way that uh, made it seem like this amazing thing that there was this trolley and people were getting on the trolley and oh my god isn't the the awe of the trolley as opposed to just in every day the passengers getting on the trolley and the scene is about the passengers um this criticism feels like a i mean a, something that comes from a a true artist in the sense of having a particular perspective um and you know approach to their art um that you know, is simply just different than Kubrick. But what, how do you guys feel about that aspect of it in terms of the film, um, especially 50 years later, how it feels uh, to see this movie that is so sort of focused on the technology of the future, which at this point has come and gone, um, and how that how we're able to kind of um, connect with that aspect of the movie, knowing now that it's merely kind of a, um, uh, uh, a a fantasy as opposed to a true premonition. I I guess I'll I'll take it by saying this is Kubrick. You know, he's providing a source of entertainment to the audience of his times. You know, I mean, I think that's where you can get into some of the. The, the brand placement, you know, Pan Am, Howard Johnson's, you know, you've already kind of referred to that, is that, you know, he's kind of having some fun. I mean, he is presenting a a form of entertainment, which is, hey, let's, let's have a time of speculating about what the future may hold and, you know, projecting our current society into this kind of futuristic setting. Uh, that was just a way of kind of you know, just like sexuality is part of Eyes Wide Shut and war and horror are part of Full Metal Jacket and The Shining. I mean, he's, he's tapping into what audiences are interested in at the time. And so, you know, he's he's kind of speculating, well, imagine a, a bus that would take 
passengers across the surface of the moon. Uh, what would it be like making a phone call from an orbiting space station back to your daughter at home? And uh, uh, even the toilet joke, you know, I mean, they're yeah. just kind of ways of amusing the audience with some fanciful presentations of what things might be like, you know, uh, 40 years or 30 years or whatever from 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 the time that they were watching it so yeah to me there's nothing really wrong with that i mean if somebody wants to you know level a critique and certainly tarkovsky is a pretty brilliant you know mind of his own so you know his his comments are very much worth contemplating but i don't know that you can say kubrick blew it or that you know this is just kind of uh, you know, unworthy or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's 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 part of the full package. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, he's 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 fetishizing some of the space aspects, the ships, the designs of things, and I think that's it's it, it'd be like looking at. I mean, it's almost a form of art. Like the way we have designed these things is a for an art form that we have. Uh, that we have uh, become has become mundane. Like you know, we've we've created these things of beauty that float through space, set to the Blue Danube, um, that are technical feats and wonderment. Um, and so he wants to showcase and look at those because that you know it is a it'd be like it's like in is Andrei Rublev. We spend the last ten, you know, five minutes of that movie staring at all the paintings that this person has created. Um, this is us looking at humanity by looking at the tools that they've created to exist in this in this future world. And so, I think it, it's a different way because I don't think Kubrick mm, Kubrick isn't concerning himself with one human story here. So it, unlike like Tarkovsky, where he spends a lot of time with like, uh, you know, everything is filtered through the lens of humanity at either its its worst or its best or a personal story that is being, um, you know, strongly focused on, and it's all about that emotion and all about that that experience. This is more of a universal experience, and so because of that, he. He takes a, a really further step back from everything to kind of like let it to let it play out and let it be. I I'm getting kind of twisted here. I, I think this movie <laughs> is the movie in which he earns his title of being cold. I think this is the movie that a lot of people see him as not a humanist director, but as a technician. And this is the one that got him that reputation. And I think that's because he was so, and I think it's because like, like what I'm like, what I perceive to be is his fascination with technology as being an, uh, as being kind of like an art form. Like this is, you know, functionality and, uh, you know, design is just as important as as art in terms of how these people create these things that we use daily, and he showcases them, which is also his way of predicting the future. And um, you know, there's this wonderful passage uh, in the uh, Stanley Kubrick archives book um, from the uh, 
I think it's called the Facts for Editorial Reference, this thing that MGM put out uh, about the, the film, which it talks about like uh, what we expect to see in the future based on all this research that Stanley Kubrick and all his researchers did. Um, this is what we can expect in the future. And uh, I think that's that's exactly what this is. is this is like, you know, uh, things to come. This is the, the world we're going to be living in. This is our future. So let's stick, step back and let's, let's look at how this process happens. Let's look to see how we go these places. And even to those jokes, how do we make that phone call? How do we use a zero-gravity toilet? All these are things that uh, help build that world a bit more. And I think because it's from a universalist standpoint of every person it's not as a human a story so there isn't that that uh you know that perspective that i think tarkovsky is missing or or, or longing for because he is a very humanist director he is very much into personal experience whereas kubrick is more into the mechanics of things a lot of times but that's how he filters how he sees humanity is through what we've created and what we've built and what we've destroyed and what we've wrought for ourselves. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, is yeah. That no, that... I mean, I, I think I think it, it's a little bit of both of what you guys are saying. I mean, to me, this movie, I don't think Kubrick made 2001 so that 33 years later he could be like, see, I was right, everybody. You know, I don't think he really cared that much to predict the future. Uh, I think the only reason that he tried so hard and put so much research into it and tried to make everything feel realistic was so that the experience of the film would be as immersive as he wanted it to be. You know, he it, all of these things were in service of the movie. You know, he wasn't trying to uh, predict what the Earth would look like from space in a clear picture so that NASA would shake him on the hand and give him a $100 prize when they actually got the real shots. You know, he, it, was, it was all about the, the, the feeling of, that people were watching this movie and feeling like they really, you know, were inside of this world. And I think that's the same with the the facts and reality um, leaflet that was handed out. It's the idea that um, that people are going in saying, "Wow, they really did a lot of research on this," so I can suspend my disbelief here and really think about what this would be like to live in this future. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, these sorts of shots uh, are really what you were talking about, David. It's it's intended as entertainment. It's it, it, he's treating it as if it's amazing and exotic because it is amazing and exotic to his audience. And so I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, especially considering that in a lot of ways, the movie is sort of inherently about discovering and progressing to amazing and exotic things. Um, so in that sense, he's underscoring the um, emotional grounding of the film by doing these sequences as opposed to moving away from it because the emotional um, foundation of the film is not in its characters, it's in its audience. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think, uh, like you said, it's, it's great to, to, uh, to, to mull over because Tarkovsky is such a, such a major force. Um, but he was also a jerk. 
So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were competitors in a certain sense. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. Well, and he he expressly made Solaris um, as a as a um, as an answer to uh, to two thousand one. Although, I, you know, who knows how much oh. of that is is um, is sort of press. Uh, um, you know, getting getting pub- publicity right. for your film in the sense of it being this this battle of of minds. Um, well, the world is better off that we have both. Solaris exactly, and, and they're and they're quite different exactly. movies in terms of what they're what they're talking about and their intentions are. So I think that's you know it, that that's that's the value of having artists um, with strong opinions is that they they generally will produce works with um, with a strong sense of vision um, for what they they want to accomplish. Um, but we haven't even gotten to uh, to the the rest stop here, um, <laughs> so it's a, you know yeah. this is basically where you get your bag of chips and go to the bathroom, um, <laughs> and uh, make sure that uh, you know you've you've got you've got enough reading material to make it to uh, all the way to the moon. Um, what do you guys think of this sequence, and, and in particular the the conversation that um, Floyd has between? Uh, uh, with the um, with his Soviet counterparts, well, to me, uh, this is just kind of taking the the strange love scenario a little bit further. It's again, we're we're still in the middle of the Cold War, but there's been some progression, and uh, you know, some some conjoined uh, scientific endeavors. But there's a little a little suspicion, a little bit of nudging and and exploring there. I, I you know, to me, it's again, it's it's just kind of projecting some of the current scenario of the the mid 60s and the rivalries between the USA and the USSR and sort of saying okay let's let's take some of that subterfuge some of that uh, you know de- deception and decoy uh, into into another you know into another arena here uh, and even even just that whole idea of uh, intentional disinformation uh, that that the that the truth can't really be uttered so we have to put a surface cover story out there to to kind of throw off the masses because they really can't handle what is actually going on i mean that's that's vintage you know 60s uh, you know paranoia conspiracy theory uh you know the the and kubrick himself of course was the recipient and and the victim of that kind of thing uh, with the later uh you know falsified moon landings and his role and all of that kind of stuff so it's it's just another little fascinating subtext of the film yeah i think it's a it's a it's interesting because uh he you know he takes us through the standard procedures for what's going on in here. You know, you have to register and, you know, through registering himself into the space station, we're learning his name. It's Dr. Haywood Floyd, where he's going, he's heading to the moon. So, you know, as much as it's, it's, it's basically a a moment for us who have been purely in a narrative, uh, excuse me, visual uh, storytelling mode. It's, it's a moment for us in the audience to now, understand that we have a destination we are going somewhere in this film and there's something that we're going to be doing now right there's some Um, tension some kind of drama yeah it builds yeah that tension i mean the uh, composition for the conversation is fantastic uh with the the, you know we start in the first shot where he is kind of like left in the center with this whole expansive background going way off into the distance and they're kind of huddled around him but they're kind of off camera a bit and then when he starts, when uh, Dr. 
Spike off, uh, or something like that. Smyslov yeah, or Spacelov, or he, they, they, he says his name three different ways, right. I think. But uh, when he starts pressing for why you're here, what's going on over in Clavius, um, the the camera switches to behind Doctor Floyd, and at that point, like it becomes super super tight, um, like. Uh, everyone is crowding around him and there's no escape like the composition in that scene is is really good it ratchets up the tension it really makes you feel um that there's something being hidden and because dr floyd has just been aw shucks like smiles the whole time he talks with his daughter i'll buy you a bush baby you know hey let's go get <laughs> breakfast joe darla you're looking fantastic today and then all of a sudden it's like I'm not telling you a goddamn thing. I'm not at liberty to comment. For a second, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, it's it's great, and and like that that camera change, and then we move into a close up of the of the uh, Russian doctor, and he's still pressing, and it is that Cold War thing of like trying to get information from both sides, you know, this Russian doctor trying to get information from the American doctor, American doctor's not giving in because there is a level of distrust going on at this time that even is existing in the future well beyond 1968 but it is a it is a touchstone for the audience to understand this this dynamic and relationship as well um but before this conversation happens he does stop to make a phone call to his daughter um played by stanley kubrick's daughter at the time and it's video phone so another predictive technology that he kind of put in here um unfortunately by bell labs something that doesn't exist anymore but uh, this is the point where, you know, we've moved from it's a continuation of that theme of moving forward. Um, I, I look at it as we come from the early man who are huddled together as a family unit to survive. And then technology has brought us out to this place where we survive without family. We're so distant from each other. We're so far apart. Um, you know, back in the early times, there'd be no way we'd be that that far away from a child. Hold on a second. I'm really sorry. Let me stop this phone. Damn it. <laughs> Technology uh, disrupts the best laid plans. <laughs> Damn you, Travis. You think you're going to tell us about technology? Somebody uh, wants a bush baby. Someone wants a bush baby. I guess, uh, I guess the company, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the department store that they were supposed to get the bush baby from, um, was very upset that they cut that scene from the movie. Oh, yeah. doesn't he, Well, he buys it uh, on the moon, right? Yeah, he was going to buy yeah. it like online, like an online version of buying. All right. So anyway, what I was saying <laughs> before I was rudely interrupted by technology um, well, just the that daddy's at work at the space station, you know, yeah. tens of you know, thousands of miles away up in space. Uh, but the family extension is still kind of intact. With well, that's the, that's distance. the thing. It's just her, right? The mommy, mommy went to uh, the store, and uh, yeah, mommy's not there. The babysitter's not even paying attention yeah, to she's her. In the like, bathroom, right? Technology has, you know, the future. We have grown further and further from this family unit because. You know, whether it's technology that has provided us this ability to get further away, which it does, um, you know, how many of us now like, you know, talk to relatives or family members through Skype or I mean, even what we're doing right now, 
we're talking to each other on Skype. We're using our technology to be close, but also we're still being we're far away from each other. Yeah. Um, and that's that, you know, another kind of like social media predictive kind of idea that uh, technology kind of takes us further and further away from each other because it, it can bring us closer together in terms of the use of it. But we're not no longer huddled together in the shadows trying to, you know, as a family unit, we're kind of like spreading apart. I just I find that to be kind of an interesting uh, theme that goes on because as the movie goes on, we get further and further away from humanity. Well, and the Soviet uh, woman know. is exploring space while her husband is exploring the deep ocean too. Yeah, so exactly. It's like as far as possible from each other as you can get. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. So we meet Doctor Haywood Floyd. He's on a mission to the moon. It's secretive. We don't know why he's there. Up until this point, it could have been for pleasure, but we realize that it's serious business when he really shuts down that Russian doctor and his line of questioning. Oh, and he shuts him down um, at, at a watering hole. Let's not forget as well. Um, yeah, you know, and 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 the way that they kind of snap out of their um, their Cold War trance is that um, that he's offered a drink. Um, and (laughs) you know, they, they, they revert immediately back to, um, to bland, um, uh, formalities, uh, in their conversation. Um, well, let's get to the moon here because we're, uh, we're, we're going deep on this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yes, we are. Uh, so, so this speech is, uh, just, um, straight out of a George Orwell, uh, novel. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where when you're, the first time you see it, you think you're getting at least some information. But if you really dissect what he's saying here, there's there's absolutely nothing that he says. He All he says is, uh, basically, I know you're frustrated that you can't tell anybody anything. Uh, you can't tell anybody anything. <laughs> oh, it's total doublespeak. <laughs> total yeah, Orwellian doublespeak. And, and just the absurdity. They're, you're gathering all of these men around this big, you know... Uh, big conference room out in you know on an, an orbital space station to tell them nothing <laughs> because something has happened that you can't you you can't talk about it's like what is even the purpose of this but but it is kind of that redundancy and i think you know i don't know that kubrick was definitely going after vietnam or just the general situation mm. of, of the times but you know kind of like how how officials will be talking all folksy and politically you know and trying to engage their audiences and all of a sudden it's like you tap into a certain subject it's like i'm not at liberty to talk about that and they, they kind of retreat into their official ease and it's like okay now you know the curtain has come down and again that's just another very sort of common experience that a lot of viewers of the times and ever since will recognize when all of a sudden we're getting into the mumbo jumbo uh, because we can neither confirm nor deny that the thing that you're tapping into is actually happening or there may be dimensions that have not yet been discovered that we're going to do our damnedest to conceal (laughs) from ever being fully known the way it really is. So uh, this whole theme of official deception and cloaking of the truth is another really key component of everything that happens kind of from that point forward in the film oh yeah and there's a reason why the only bright shock of color in that room is the american flag over in the corner just like an official press conference in which you know you would have that kind of double speak and that that hiding of the truth and feeding the audience a little of what they want to hear 
Um, the other thing that I find interesting so far, um, besides everything in this movie that I find interesting, uh, you know, I, I'll bring up this moment to bring up our uh, Stanley Kubrick and women, uh, mm-hmm. you know, moment. Um, at this point, uh, it is, you know, once again, we don't have any women with like serious speaking roles that have anything more to say than, you know, uh, to let uh, give an opportunity for another man to talk. But, you know, he does provide women of positions of power in this film. So we have doctors, three female doctors. We have uh, in that conference room, there are also women that are represented here. So that's a huge step forward for Kubrick at this point. But still, you know, there is no there is no room for, you know, there's no concern. It's that no concern for women thing that he constantly has throughout his, you know, so far throughout his uh, career um, where he just isn't you know thinking about it and i just find it very interesting that still it's like you know it's of it's of that period even in the future there's still no room for (laughs) growth of women they're still stewardesses wearing their space balls bra hats and they're you know they're just it's it's very it's very weird like you know looking at it from today's lens and seeing like just there is no representation really and uh you know that's our moment of Stanley Kubrick and women discussion <laughs> that we always have to have in every one of our things. Well, and, and, as uh, we get farther away from I mean, as the monolith uh, presents itself uh, tw- at the end of the film, like, <laughs> once we have aliens, we don't need women to make fetuses anymore, right? <laughs> no, we don't. We've gone beyond that. Um, but, yeah. Um, but, no, it's a... Yeah, it is. It's that deceptive nature. And the, the film takes a, uh, a tonal shift here. There is that feeling that something is off. And the next moment you have to kind of uh, uh, confirm that feeling is when we move into the space shuttle to take us over the space bus, the moon bus to take us to Clavius. Um, the, 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 the music shifts dramatically. No longer is it the Blue Danube or a nice beautiful waltz and look at the marvel of, of space travel. Uh, it is some of that. It's a return to that uh, tonal, vocal, uh, dis- dissonant voices that we had when we last saw the monolith. It's that kind of. It's that same type of music. So there is a tension to the trip now, which is uh, which it wasn't present before that in any of the other space journey type uh, footage. Kind of a dreadful, what are we about to step into here, uh, theme is building up. Like, it's going to be amazing, but pretty scary as well. Well, and it's pretty, that Mm. shot of them standing, you know, on the edge of the crater, uh, it's pretty eerie. Uh, It's a pretty eerie shot of them, you know. It's almost like they're the the aliens standing there um, in their their suits. Um, And Spielberg lifted that shot for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, when you're yeah. looking at all the lights set up around the Ark of the Covenant, right. <laughs> it's a total totally, lift. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Before well, before we get into the the dig, um, the, I did want to just make one point because David, you had mentioned earlier the idea of of Moonwatcher kind of uh, you thinking about the monolith in the context of his experience that he's already had of being humiliated at the watering hole, and this feels very similar to that in the sense of. Um, they, these, these humans feel like they are 
more concerned with what the monolith means for the world as it exists um, and their experience than they are with what the monolith means for the future and sort of what the you know true kind of purpose of it is you know they're they're more focused on the idea of keeping it from the soviets and avoiding a um uh a panic uh than they are you know really thinking about like who who sent this what what is it coming from why what is its purpose what are we going to you know do about this or or what are we going to discover um Right, and and right. and I think that the the kind of you know sharp screech is a is a a bit of a wake up call for them in that regard. Yeah, they they are the the custodians of the truth. You know, they 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 presume that since they discovered it, they kind of own it in a right. sense, and that it's their their prerogative to, to to decide who gets access to this information and who doesn't. And while I can understand, I mean, I'm a person of <laughs> some authority in a very small organization that I work for, and sometimes you do have to regulate how information is disclosed uh, for a variety of considerations. Uh, you know, that, that's that's a significant responsibility, but there's also an arrogance or presumption that comes with that, like I'm capable of managing this responsibility, you know, the way it's supposed to be done. And that is the arrogance of power that because I have this information or I have this ability, I'm somehow a cut above. I, I have a worthiness that other people somehow lack because they don't know the things that I know. <laughs> so that's it's it's something that you have to sort of check your own ego even as you manage those responsibilities to the best of uh, the best that you can, and, and it's a and that uh, the monolith really kind of like sets forth another milestone. Uh, it's almost like the first time it was a spark to kind of say, "Hey, get moving in the right direction," and then now it's like, "Okay, you've finally been able to achieve some level of." sophistication that you can now move forward into this next they're almost like mile as much as they're monoliths they're also kind of like mile markers of human evolution and human progress so you know and of course it's that idea that you know like david and, and matt you were just saying about like it's how you bring your own perspective to it it's 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 great because it's a it, it once again that you know it was designed to be black and dark and unknowing but also it does reflect like you can see yourself in this thing but it is a dark reflection and i think a lot of that uh you know when they were designing the monolith they went through many different stages at one point it was a clear glass cube another point it was like an obelisk or a pyramid and then you know they decided upon this the perfect black you know almost uh you know tablet like this this just doorway because it does reflect a doorway in some aspects uh, especially later in the film uh i know that uh, uh when i was younger and i first saw this movie when it's floating in space later in the film it reminded me of the uh the phantom zone thing from superman just floating through space and this is doorway to another place and uh the imagery just kind of connected that way but um yeah this moment on the moon it's a uh, it's this, you know, it, it kind of also, once again, it's more important to take a picture with your discovery than it is to figure out what this thing is. And that's kind of like our modern technology, our modern uh, 
uh, obsession with documenting ourselves in, in these moments. You know, it's more important to have a video of a f concert you went to than to enjoy the concert because otherwise you can't show that you were at this concert because <laughs> the status yeah, of yeah. knowing you were there is more important than what the thing is. And it and it has the almost the same composition as the uh, the ape scene, uh, the early man scene. Uh, they're around the monolith in the same sort of uh, tableau as in the uh, earlier one when he first touches it, which I also found very interesting, except it's mirrored, it's flipped. Um, and then this is also a cine uh, from cinematography. Uh, this is the first time in the film uh, he switches to handheld camera. Um, this whole film, it's been very either static, still, the, the motion is happening within the frame and not the camera moving. moving. And in this moment here when he, uh, Dr. Floyd... Uh, enters the crater and starts to approach the monolith and walk around it we go to a handheld camera and it feels very much like we are very present and in that moment the the switch to that kind of perspective really adds to the tension of the scene um, which is uh, you know helps sell that that concept that we don't you know this dangerous idea of we don't know what this is and knowledge can sometimes be dangerous, which also goes back to what David was just saying about how you parcel out this information. And that's exactly what the aliens are also doing in this, is they're not giving us all the information at once. They're parsing it out slowly. So when we're ready for more information, we can then move forward, which is the same thing that we're doing. We're talking about with, should we give this information to the rest of the world? Are they ready for it? Um, that there is something greater than us out in the universe, something more intelligent that can, you know, leave this thing four million years ago, buried on the moon in preparation for us to eventually find it. You know, there's a, there's a lot of that in both what's going on uh, with the monolith and what's going on with the experience that the, uh, the characters are having within the scene. Why do you guys think uh, it beeps? I, well, I think the you see the sun hitting the monolith in that overhead sh uh, shot there, where or really from the bottom up, uh, I think the sun hits the object and sends a signal. Although the question would be, wouldn't the sun have already hit the object many times since they have this huge pit dug out and it's been exposed? Right. You know, I I don't know enough about <laughs> the the rotation of the moon and how often the sun would strike that particular service. Although it. it, it you know, I, it can't be on the dark side of the moon because the sun would never hit it then. So, yeah, yeah I mean, well, is it, aren't there? Isn't there an alignment? Isn't it the, could the, be. The it could be that aligned the, with the sun. Yeah, well, the sun is is perfectly crested right over the the yeah. top half there of the monolith. So, yeah, there. Yeah, there's an Earth Sun alignment. You're right that the scene is actually on my monitor at this very moment. Nice little synchronicity there. <laughs> so, nice. it, yeah, it sends this signal, and uh, yeah, it, it's 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 just kind of a you know, it, it's the launching pad for the next major sequence. But we really haven't resolved the d debate between the chicken or the ham sandwich yet. But, uh, <laughs> we just need to move on. <laughs> well, I think that's the first funny, funny scene in the movie. Just their their bland praise of him. Like, you know, it, it's it just immediately now these days recalls heck of a job, Brownie, you know, and uh, <laughs> pat patting each other on the yeah. back and, and, and again, food, you know, the, 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 the running theme of food. 
Um, but yeah, we, we have been talking for quite a while and we have not even mentioned how. <laughs> so we cut forward, I think it's 18 months. Is that right? 18 months. Yeah. So, so we are on, we are on a ship and I, I think this, this first shot of the ship, the long ship as it pans out is basically just exactly star Wars. I mean, I, there's definitely mm. star Wars in this movie up to this point, but this, this shot is, I mean, it's just immediate. You immediately see the connection between this film and, and sort of the direct, influence that it it had on lucas's film yeah the the background field of stars yeah the 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 motion through the screen i mean the space station and orion they're kind of these floating objects but the discovery definitely has a pursuit it's it's on a trajectory to get somewhere and of course that's the you know the star wars universe is all about ships moving towards destinations not orbiting yeah, yeah and, and then this the, the great uh, the great uh spoof that space balls does where the ship just keeps going right. and going and going and then, and then we have this this jogging sequence which is another pretty cool magic trick that that kubrick pulls off um and uh this this sequence was originally longer in the in the version that he released uh in a couple of cities and uh showed to critics as well and was partially uh one of the sort of main focuses of criticism that it went on too long uh and he so he cut a a part of this out along with i I think about 14 minutes of the film uh for its wider release um but it's i mean he built this incredible set yeah you definitely want to get your money's worth yeah and he he does he you know i think it's really great like each shot in the in the sequence is interesting in a different way you know whether you're tracking behind him as he's running uh uh, around this surface or the stationary camera as he's running on the side you know it's each each moment provides a different neat trick um and and in a in a fascinating way um and i think really sort of establishes the kind of like lonely journey of this sequence uh as well but after that moment we get hal um and you know the the thing that struck me on this viewing uh of just how he's introduced is it's very similar to how we're introduced to uh the heavenly bodies in the film you know it's this just sort of stationary orb that's constantly watching and sort of hovering you know on screen yeah, the the big red orb with a little yellow dot in the middle there, just staring, just implacable, you know, omniscient practically. Uh, it's everywhere, I and mean, that's the thing. Hal is this this computer with eyes all over the place. I mean, every time you turn around, there's another little Hal panel sticking out, uh, checking you out, and uh, you know, he's he's advertised as this futuristic companion, kind of. Uh, the, the perfect technological aid, the sixth member of the crew, all of that. And uh, things slowly but inexorably start to go haywire. There. What do you guys think of the, before we get into uh, to the the, uh, the plot here, what do you guys think of the HAL-IBM acronym conspiracy theory, the idea that you go one, <laughs> one move in the alphabet for each letter, uh, in Hal, and it becomes IBM. Do you guys think that that was 
on purpose and Kubrick just just denied it to his grave to to shield him from IBM criticism? I don't really think much of it myself. I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is much more significant. <laughs> you want to get into and that's another that's another uh, cover story magic. that's been uh, that, that's been taken to the grave as well. <laughs> right. No, I think it's uh it, you know the coincidences are there and apparent, uh, but uh it, you know it's fun. I think that's part of that whole like. You know the myth, the mythologizing of the film, which allows uh, allows other people to really get into uh, almost like this kind of uh, Hal as IBM is kind of like a internet fandom of this film. <laughs> you know, just that whole uh, that whole conspiracy right. theory of it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's a it's, teenager it's, point of access or young adult yeah. you know, thing that you might notice and ooh wow. Heebie-jeebies, <laughs> and then you realize that so what you know H A L I B M whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So and so this sequence here that leads up to the the really the chess game into the conversation about the um, about the air um, has a few things uh, to it. I mean, one thing obviously again we're seeing food here. Um, it's kind of this like. It always looked like really um, appealing to me when I was a kid for some weird reason. I think it was kind of like, it's kind of like the food in Hook. You know, it's just this like bright mass of something that's like a color that is not actual (laughs) real food. And so therefore it seems delicious. (laughs) Well, my wife and I have gone around, you know, she's really into, you know, organics and whole foods and cooking from scratch and all of that. And I'm like, you know, if you could just give me a nutrient soaked paste that I could just sort of... (laughs) Have a couple oh, yeah. spoonfuls and get my complete, you know, balanced uh, diet, you know, and just keep on moving. I, I'm good with it. <laughs> so, yep. and that to me, yes, yeah, space food sticks going all the way back to, uh, you know, right. just this kind of high efficiency. You know, give me my my pod there, and I'll just uh, move on. I think I think the most startling thing about this scene is how horrible Frank Poole is at is is at eating. Like the way he uses his spork <laughs> yeah. to get the inf- to get the food on it is it's it's frustrating and angering to me. Yeah, he's really having trouble. <laughs> like, oh breaking God, off please, a piece, dude, use it? that the right way. <laughs> um, the other one one of the other things I wanted to touch on is the um, is the phone call that he has with his um, with his parents back home, and I guess. I find it interesting that both of the phone calls in the in the film are about birthdays. You know, I don't know if that mm. is sort of like an emo- intended just purely as an emotional touchstone or if it's kind of a reference to the idea that birthdays are uh, a trip around the sun and, you know, the 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 idea of kind of the irrelevance of it once you're in in space, you're no longer traveling around the sun in uh, on on earth in in that way. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. Well, when do calendars become irrelevant? Yeah. If you're out in space, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't. I never really thought about it that way in terms of the uh, trip around the sun. But uh, yeah, I just always looked at it as uh, just the cultural significance of uh, you usually only talk to your family right. for those important yeah. days yeah. sometimes. And um, I just like the. Uh, 
is at this point, like with the foodie, I, I developed that I don't like Frank Poole in this movie, so I'm okay when he dies <laughs> because between the food eating yeah. and the uh, like the barking orders at Hal to raise his head just yeah. to the perfect level while he's suntanning himself <laughs> and his parents are wishing him a happy birthday on the video screen and he really doesn't seem to care that much. Like, that just made me like, oh, yeah, Frank Poole deserves to die. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably how Hal felt as well. Um, what about the newscast? What do you guys, what do you guys, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Uh, it's a bit of a convenient advancement. It's a it, you know, it fills in kind of what's happening here. So by, whether it's by coincidence, I guess you could say, well, the, the, uh, you know, the astronauts would be interested in hearing how their mission is being covered back on earth, but it, it serves kind of that dual function of yeah. both filling them in and, and, and letting the audience know kind of the, you know the purpose of this mission and what's supposedly being accomplished on it's it. It's sort of ego boosting too, right? It's like you got you want to see how you come yeah, across. You're reading your TV. press, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, it's 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 like the future of social media. It's once again googling yourself. Yeah. Yes. They're out there looking at themselves on their tablets, which is basically all what life is right now. Yeah, and and <laughs> and, uh, and to advance your your Frank Poole deserves to die theory, Travis. I find it really funny that he's the one that says, you know. You, you think of him as just another person and then he like he yeah. gets one thing wrong and he's like we gotta disconnect this guy <laughs> well yeah and <laughs> like kill and him he, yeah he, he, he says things I mean the the way the way uh David Bowman speaks of how he seems to be a little more reticent to accept him as kind of like uh, the be-all end-all like in his talking but Frank Poole is kind of like he basically is like, yeah, he's our servant. Like, the way he speaks about Hal is like, oh, he's a sixth member of the crew. He does everything we need him to do. He does whatever we want. And it's kind of like that arrogance. And then even when, uh, like, Hal kicks his ass at chess later on, you can see him kind of be like, meh. Yeah, okay, good game, Hal. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Frank. And he's just like, meh, whatever. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too down with this. I'm, I'm kind of... But, uh... Yeah, I think, oh, one of the interesting, um, so they're looking at themselves on those tablet screens, and uh, a while back when uh, Apple sued another company yeah, for Samsung. coming out with a tablet, yeah, yeah Samsung, uh, Samsung used this movie as proof that Apple, uh, Apple was not a, did not come up with this wholly out of cloth that they made themselves, that this was an idea that's existed since the 60s, and they had, you know, they lost that case. Um, and so they use this movie as proof that this is just something that's always been, which I found I found very very fa- fascinating. Uh, you know that that was because as a kid, I never made the connection that that is a tablet. I always just pictured it as a TV screen, but it is very much yeah. exactly what an iPad is. You know, it's <laughs> that same vertical hold and yeah, a little portable device that you just pick up and yeah. watch your image. Uh wherever you may happen to be wandering right yeah the other uh the other connection i made during that frank Poole suntanning himself scene was and i stupidly didn't look it up i i told myself i should uh what year did the graduate come out 60 68 it was 68 okay Uh, it might have been late 60s actually it was very late 67 yeah that's right i think back on my blog there you're right basically that frank sitting at on sun tanning himself in his short white shorts with his sunglasses on listening to his parents talk at him about what his future should be is very very much the graduate it looks almost exactly the same (laughs) (laughs) 
um, yeah, so like so it. let's let's get into how uh, how getting real here. Um, so she stops being nice and starts getting real. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what what about? Let's start with this. What about the wrong chess move? What do you guys think of that? The idea that he is saying the wrong square in that move. Oh, elaborate on that because so yeah. in other words, the the move that Hal calls out to put so Hal uh, calls uh, Frank into checkmate yeah, is knight, not actually accurate. To what three, we see I on think, screen? is what it is. Knight to bishop three. Okay, so bishop three is on Frank's side, so that would actually mm-hmm. be knight to bishop six from Hal's perspective. Wow. Okay. So is the okay. So that's a. Do you think that's an intentional? Sort of well, I guess there's screw two up options. There? I guess there's two or, options there. Yeah, okay. There, yeah. The the uh-huh. one option is that it's it's uh, intentional scripting on the, error. Well, actually, or... there's three options. Okay. So the first one is that it's nothing, and the reason he's doing it is because he just calls out moves from Frank's perspective. The mm-hmm. the second reason is that is that he's doing it on purpose in order to test Frank as a human member of the crew to see if he is perceptive enough to fulfill the tasks that Hal believes they need to fulfill on the mission. The third is that Hal makes, this is Hal's first mistake, and it is a sign that he has um, deteriorated in his effectiveness because of the, uh, more well, I won't say because of one particular thing, but just what, what, for whatever reason it is that he eventually um, loses control. Um, is there a fourth option, which is whoever wrote that script just didn't catch their own mistake? I, I, mean, I, I can't don't know. I mean, imagine. This is this is Kubrick, completely new to me, I mean, so I haven't yeah, really I mean, heard this me, particular controversy. Kubrick yeah. is is a is a chess guy. Sure. Oh, oh that's true. So right, I, right. to me, it just seems unlikely that it would be something that he wouldn't do on purpose okay um wow yeah well i'll have to sort of take a pass <laughs> ponder my options but i'm really curious were you were you aware of this a, travis if there's a literature I, on that. I i remember reading something about it in one of those kind of like uh like things to you know kind of conspiracies yeah about the movie and and that was where i i remember coming across it but I don't know chess well enough to have ever picked up on yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it seems um, like with the with the I, chess, with the drawing, sort of like hold it a little closer, um, and then obviously the more overt um, conversation that he has about his suspicions about the mission, they all have this underlying sense that he could be testing them in some way. I mean, it may, it, it it makes sense because I think. You know, Hal has access to more information than the crew does. He knows what the mission really is. And, you know, it is that that concept that Hal is supposed to be, you know, by design, smarter, like, be smarter than most humans. And, know, and less prone do, to error, especially. Less prone he to error. He will not yeah, make that, mistakes, whereas humans, even though they may have some abilities that Hal will never have, are, are vulnerable. You know, they're yeah. mistake prone, right? Exactly, and then there's you know there's that, and then so of course if Hal did make a mistake, he would never recognize that as a mistake because he also has never made a mistake. So no mis you know, but I think I think those are um, tests to see if they're willing to do things and trust him and go certain ways, and so that whole like 
there's something wrong with the uh, what's the unit number again a what's the thing that's wrong with the satellite the communication oh the AO unit yeah the yeah. AO unit mm -hmm. when he says there's a there's a it appears uh, I watched it again uh, this morning it's like there's a little bit of a glitch before he he repeats himself before saying there's something wrong with that unit and it's while they're having a conversation about um, something's wrong. Hal's the one who brings up something's wrong about this mission. Right. And it's very abrupt. It, it just sort of comes out of nowhere. And again, I, I know that yeah. you have to have some economy in the film. You can't just have long stretches of nothing and then all of a sudden a problem develops. It's like right in the middle of all this kind of exposition and all of a sudden there's a problem here. <laughs> it's like, whoa, where'd that come from? You know. Well, and it's right after he yeah. calls him out for developing the crew psychology report, which... Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, exactly. it's, it's also kind of questionable whether it was that what he was doing. You know, he knows why they're on this mission uh, in a way that that the astronauts do not. So in he's at least sort of um, exploring what they know or what they think they know. Um, you know, he has this knowledge. He's almost Floyd in this scenario. He has this knowledge that other people do not, that he's trying to kind of figure out how much they know. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess it's at this point that uh, this is where, like, the kind of uh, the mysterious aspects of where we start thinking about kind of, like, who knows what and what is Hal's uh, end game like what is he trying to right. do right yeah what is hal's intentionality because now we're, we're we're recognizing that hal has some kind of a uh of scheme in mind he's not just a purely robotic responsive servant that maybe that the way that frank has depicted him uh, you know dave still has his sort of skepticism about you know how functional is he as an independent autonomous member of the crew uh but hal definitely begins to reveal that he's got his own designs here and that they may not be completely supportive of what the two you know awake conscious members of the crew want him to do there's a just a tinge of adversarial uh tension that's developing in in the in these exchanges where uh again there's a there's a hidden agenda there's a concealed truth behind what everybody is saying to each other <laughs> you know? yeah is like, that i mean I yeah, guess is, very is complicated it, is it right? the secret is it the keeping of the secret that almost sort of awakens how's humanity and that makes him kind of no longer this just there to serve to serve man as they would they would say i mean because it, it does seem like <laughs> yeah. it, it's not the it's not the concept of the air that that uh, that he aired that makes him go crazy it seems like it's this knowledge that he possesses that he knows that they do not possess or cannot possess and that somehow their vulnerability their their frailty their their proneness to mess up somewhere along the line is what's in Hal's view going to jeopardize the mission and and so again it gets back into Hal's programming and what was his what was his genuine purpose and and the fact that he is programmed to conceal the truth even from the people that he's working with most intimately on a day-to-day -day basis is that the is that the you know fly in the ointment is that the uh 
you know, the mistake that is attributable to human error <laughs> that, that sends everything off kilter. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's humans who made him. So right. Of course right. there's, there's no, they had to err somewhere along the way because they cannot, you know, there is no perfection in the things, the stuff that we do, you know, to err is to be human and there is no perfect anything. So, somewhere is there a design flaw in how and is it the hubris is it the fact that it is imbued with the knowledge that it never makes mistakes like is that the thing that gives it but i guess i never talking about it now i've never really looked at any of this stuff as as how actually making any mistakes i always looked at it as cat and mouse how trying to get them to do things for him to dispose of them so he can be the one who makes contact because there is this sense that Hal is moved past his programming and is becoming artificial intelligence which with this knowledge and this secret that there is something greater than humans out there that there's a connection that he has with this signal or this source or this thing that makes him think that he's more worthy than everyone which that first spacewalk, it's almost kind of like watching how they go about doing things, so he can he can plan their their death. Like like it's it's almost kind of like the uh, the serial killer following the victim for a day before enacting the plan. Like I, I always looked, I never looked at it as like there's a malfunction in Hal. I think the malfunction in Hal is that he let his hand slip a little bit by talking about this stuff to David who is more skeptical of how than Frank, who probably would have just blown off the, you know, that kind of a conversation. Um, I think that's the only mistake is that he chose to divulge information to the wrong person. Well, Hal is kind of like the, uh, you know, the peasant guide who, you know, the, the, you know, the, the great white, you know, explorer comes in and says, I hear there's an El Dorado, a, 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 a treasure of gold back in the mountains. So he hires one of the natives to lead oh, him I to like the that. source. And Hal is like the peasant who says, you know what? I can get that gold and I'll just get rid of this guy. And and so you, you almost have a, another kind of a, a space race, if you will. You've got the artificial intelligence uh, versus the human to see who's going to make first contact uh in in Jupiter in Jupiter's realm there, to uh, you know to take that next leap. <laughs> I mean, this is that's I, I guess one of my notions here is is you know who programmed Hal we don't really know, but somebody programmed Hal to keep a secret, and mm-hmm. because keeping secrets often implies the necessity for dishonesty, you've got to program a computer that's programmed to lie if somebody gets too close to the truth and that's 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 the fundamental you know uh disruption right there that that kind of makes it impossible for this mission to reach a kind of a harmonious conclusion and so this again this element of competition there's going to be a winner there's going to be a loser sort of just like who gets the watering hole you know <laughs> is yeah. it is it this tribe or that tribe yeah i totally agree with that interpretation i mean to me that this yeah. this because i think the first on first viewing you think okay this computer makes a mistake it refuses to acknowledge that mistake 
and it kills these people in order to stay alive. You know, it's the it's the drive for um, for survival that is um, that is propelling the, these actions. But I, I think in reality, it's it's exactly what you guys are talking about. It's it's that it's the drive for progress, you know, and, and this becomes a battle between two sides, just like uh, the, the Cold War is, you know, it's it's the the quest for knowledge. And, and you know, when, once we get into space, humanity is reliant upon me- machines because of the mm-hmm. fear of the unknown. You know, we're afraid of space. We don't we're not able to survive in it. We need machines in order to survive. And it's the un, it's the thing that we don't know that ends up turning this machine into humanity. I mean, because they they provide Hal with the unknown, the knowledge of this unknown, and it may it makes it so that they're they he becomes more human in that sense and in, by becoming more human he gains all of the bad uh emotional elements of being human along with the good emotional elements yeah no it's in that's uh and going off of what david was just saying and that's a theme of kubrick's which is uh all the machinations are easily undone by one deception and that happens in a lot of in a lot of his films, from his noir stuff to, uh, you know, even his stuff that we're going to see upcoming in his uh, future works is this uh, perfectly laid plans and just watch them all fall apart. And that's exactly what this is. This is the perfectly laid plan to finally reach out to this uh, this otherworldly this this idea, this concept, this being that has reached out to us is to present ourselves to it and the watch we made a perfect machine to take us there and of course that perfect machine is flawed because we taught it how to lie and that is something that you know that is something that will then therefore you know be our downfall um you know there's also this kind of concept that i've read a couple times is you know how wanting to become human there's like a bit of the pinocchio theory going on there which is you know his his desire and drive to become like like the two men that are there and you know appreciate art and to uh you know be knowledgeable in things and to play them their their games and then you know hopefully that this this thing that lies in jupiter uh, jupiter uh being the uh, roman name for zeus which is the you know the god of gods this you know which we haven't even talked about like all these uh spirituality and uh religious aspects that you can imbibe in this film um, you know, is this kind of like going to the blue fairy to grant his wish? Like, will this thing of ultimate knowledge and of higher technology be able to give Hal the thing he wants? Um, which could be that he wants to, you know, be, you know, to exist. He wants to have a body. Just, he wants to be yeah, yeah, exactly, a, a, to, a, an individual, right? Yeah. So in this, in, in, you know, this individual concept and notion and this, you know, feeling of freedom which is uh you know something that everyone strives for at some point and so it's a yeah it's very it's very it's very interesting because i think uh i think sometimes this is one of those cases where i really think that people get hung up on the actual story of what's going on and and not looking at the deeper uh themes of what it could be because you know when when Hal when Hal is being accused of profiling everyone and doing psych reports on everyone for to what end, uh, that's when he says uh, there's something wrong with the communications. 
and just like totally changes the subject <laughs> and buys himself yeah. some time to figure out what he's going to do next. You know, it's uh it's very, it's very interesting. It is a very, uh, it's a very human, human thing to deflect. And, uh, he does it, he, he does it with that kind of, uh, space thing. And then as, as they talk and say like, Hey, Oh man, the shots of, of us realizing that Hal is reading their lips in the pod, mm-hmm. that is just chilling. And then we cut to intermission and you're just left with that knowledge that like, Oh my God, what's about to happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, in this <laughs> whole sequence, to think this whole sequence of replacing the unit and going back out. I mean, it, it's one of the, the great terrifying sequences in film history. Mm. Um, and it, it's it's also uh, and and this has come into play in the previous uh, sections of the film as well. But um, the the lack of music in this film is often as important yeah. as the use of music. And I think you know, especially in this era of film, it's it would be very rare for somebody to shoot a sequence like this and not use some sort of suspenseful crescendo type music um in the in these moments and you know this was 10 years before in space no one could hear you scream so this this really was uh a truly terrifying thing to to see you know the this guy essentially get murdered in space um, and even the moments of, you know, the blinking, just the, the we watch murders that are just basically words on a screen blinking with beeps. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, these are, are really just terrifying sequences and they're They're just so efficiently shot and um, and, uh, and and effective in what they're trying to do. Well, just that that soundtrack of just breathing. Yeah. I mean, it's just so you know just so gut level you know just just existing just clinging to life because the elements you have around you are just you know the minimal amount that you need to stay alive in this incredibly stressful circumstance i mean you're disabling your communications link for the sake of an experiment you know it's it's like really yeah it's just so tenuous you know you're out there on the 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 flimsiest of threads so so far from home out into this incredibly hostile you know environment and now you're kind of intentionally disabling yourself because the machine just told you that yeah that's what you're supposed to do yeah. <laughs> and, and and all you can do is just breathe 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 that's just so so incredibly tense and so uh, nerve-wracking so then we get to to Dave uh, sort of confronting Hal and Hal lays it all out there, which is an interesting sequence because we it's good to know that information as the audience and we should probably allow Kubrick a little bit of artistic license in terms of uh, explaining to people exactly what's happening there. Um, but it is interesting, like why would Hal bother even talking to Dave? From his perspective, he thinks that he has gotten checkmate you know, in the parlance of her, of their chess game, um, right? Because Davis stuck out in the pod yeah. without a helmet, mm-hmm. and it's like you know, game over. Yeah. You so, know? do you guys feel like so that's just almost pure, a little bit sort of, of like an exposition little... tool, or do you think it's pride? <laughs> right. Do you think it's, it's the, the pride it's they the... were talking about earlier? Yeah. Well, it's the old school. It's the old school villain yeah. monologuing. Now that right. the plan yeah, exactly. has come to fruition, I'll explain everything to you, Mister Bond. Well, and and that was the first emotion <laughs> yeah. that they ascribed to Hal was pride. You know, he mm-hmm. he could just be feeling in that moment that he has saved the mission you know from his perspective 
and um, he's going to, uh, you know, complete uh, the journey as it was intended to be completed, and he gets to yeah, and if crow he, to somebody right. about it. Yeah, and if you buy into this rivalry between human and artificial intelligence, it's like the AI is saying, you know what, I won. I'm yeah. going to spike the football here and sort of throw it at you because uh, I got the last move in except Dave has one more. Right. Well, he spikes sleeve. the football and it comes yeah. bouncing back right back into his face. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this sequence is just so funny. And there's funny moments in this movie. I don't think Kubrick... Kubrick is a secret comedian, I think, as a filmmaker uh, in most of his movies. And um, this this whole like the whole conversation that, that Hal has trying to talk Dave out of it you know i know i haven't been feeling feeling myself it's so funny well right because he's using all of the psychological tricks that a guilty party will use when they've been detected and when they know they've got you know the shit hitting the fan and it's about to go down and they want to try to salvage take a stress whatever little yeah exactly you know it's yeah. it's not my problem it's your problem you know why why are you so depressed why are you always so hostile you know i mean all the things that uh you know uh the guilty party does when they know they've been nailed but they want to sort of see if they can wiggle their way out of it you know so they'll try pleading they'll try bullying they'll try mockery whatever i mean hal is completely shafted here and and dave's out to get him but Hal's going to throw every last little, uh, you know, nugget that he can come up with to try to calm Dave down and, uh, you know, get him to turn back and give him one more chance. <laughs> yeah. Even, even like, even going so far as to start ascribing like all these emotions and feelings, like I, I'm really scared, Dave. Mm-hmm. Don't, yeah. Don't feel sorry this, for Dave. me. Pity me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Feel sorry for me. And, you know, and that's where, it starts playing mind mind games with you because you can you know you can look at it as okay this is great this is the this is the simpering uh, villain trying to get the hero to kind of cut him a break um, like the like a what, what was the name of the doctor in Lost in Space that was constantly like uh, asking for one more chance as he screwed up the. Uh, <laughs> Right. Everyone's everyone's attempts to escape the planet. Well, doctor, wasn't on. it Doctor Smith? Uh, there you go, yeah. Doctor Smith. Right, He's Doctor right. Smithing the situation. <laughs> oh, oh, think please. of all we've been through. We, yes. we, our relationship <laughs> exactly. all the years. He's, I mean, tra- He's yeah. using that, but there's also like, what if, what if he really is like feeling all these things? Like, what if he has achieved this level, mm-hmm. and this is like, he is terrified. Like the truth is, he's scared now. Because the thought of dying has never occurred to him because death is something that should never have to occur to a, a, a computer. But now he's reached a level of intelligence that now he understands what death is, right. which they... is what makes us human. And now he is realizing that in the last moments of his existence that he is more human than he thought. And he is literally like he is terrified about what what's about to happen to him. Which is even more, which becomes tragic at that point, because then it's like, oh my god, like what you know, what if this thing is is telling the truth? What if it really is just terrified, and it's using all those other lines to mask that this is what it really is afraid of? Um, and then just you just watch Dave Bowman just with like, without hesitation, yeah, like he's the one that's going to finish this mission. He's the one who has the determination to make this happen, uh, and it's not going to be Hal, you know. 
Dave's willing to just cut Frank Poole loose out in the dead of space to complete the mission well, to save well, himself. Well, he, he has to because there's no... I mean, he wanted to get Frank's body back yeah. into right. Discovery, but that wasn't going to work, so it does become that kind of hardcore, hey, I got to do Cold what I got to do. precision, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Hal in his final moments, um, similar to, to Dave, uh, becomes a baby. You know, he, he starts mm-hmm. talking about when he was born, who his father was, and then he sings uh, the Daisy song, which is um, the song that was the first song that a computer ever sang uh, in a programming facility. I think in the early 60s, um, they programmed a computer to sing to sing that song. Um, so he's reverting back to the birth of, of AI, essentially, as he um, oh, as fantastic. he, um, you know, dies. Yeah. And then once again, one more jump cut, cut to black. And here we are. <laughs> so we are now. Well, and, um, and also the minute Hal dies, uh, the minute his logic circuits right. have been disabled, oh, the, the power revealed. supply cuts off. Now the truth oh, yeah. is revealed. This video kicks in. And again, it's the economy of filmmaking, but it's like, wow, what a coincidence mm. <laughs> or what timing. And so it yeah. does raise this question of like, what was the ultimate purpose of this mission? Was it to have one sole survivor make it to Jupiter to take this next step or was this original scheme of having five crew members and Hal, you know, encounter whatever it was there on the other end of the uh, signal, you know, y- you know, y- you get into all this kind of, you know, predestination and secret plotting and conspiracy and, 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 or even is this just a random, you know, we, we put six bodies on this flight or, or six minds, I guess, five bodies, six minds, and we'll see who makes it, and then what happens from there. I mean, you know, endless, endless uh, material for speculation of what was truly supposed to happen, or was it just, hey, we'll just, you know, throw our best handful of technology and intelligence and humanity at it and see what sticks. You know, yeah. You know, I guess that kind of gets onto this kind of ontological, what are your own beliefs about the nature of reality and does the universe have a purpose or is it truly just a random material whatever that kind of somehow found its way into existence and you have to wonder like what the purpose of of uh of preventing these two astronauts that are are, you know the only people that are going to be on this ship uh for most of the flight preventing them from finding out what the purpose of this mission is were they really going to call back home and tell everybody what uh what they found you know i mean the risk inherent in that was weighed against the importance of having this knowledge as a powerful tool. And they, you know, they chose to take that risk. And, and Dave only is, has the truth revealed to him when he literally smashes the system, you know, um, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it allows him to go to this, uh, to this next step, um, which is, uh, beyond the infinite. Uh, and, uh, this is another sequence that in my mind was sort of longer and more ponderous than it actually is. It, it's actually, uh, to me, just endlessly fascinating and uh, always has, there's always something new to watch in it, you know, and and uh, and it just, to me, it's like exactly the right length. It just works really purpose, per, uh, perfectly. Um, it also reminded me this time of the... Uh, the Twin Peaks, the return episode eight, um, which was, you know, the pretty, 
No spoilers. I oh, seen okay. It. Well, then I won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I won't I go say, further than I will that. Say going, <laughs> I will say going back to your, uh, you talked about Odysseus in the Odyssey, like yeah. naming it the Odyssey. Um, you know, we didn't touch, I mean, maybe we did, but we didn't touch upon the fact that, you know, like uh, Dave has to kill the Cyclops to move forward, which is part a big part of the Odyssey, you know. Uh, Hal being the yeah. Cyclops, the one red eye that is right. constantly monitoring him, and he needs to do that to move forward in that journey to keep going forward, which, you know. Ultimately, does in. lead him back home, too, which is the yeah, other big exactly. essential part of the Odyssean journey. Yeah, no, totally. And then I, I agree. This section, I always remember this section being the, uh, this morning, I watched it one last time, just this last section uh, from jupiter and beyond the infinite uh just to kind of you know brush up one more time before coming to podcast and my son was watching it with me and uh it was absolutely hysterical because he's just sitting next to me like what's going on what's going on dad this is freaking me out what is this this that's is freaking pretty me much out. been the standard what's... reaction ever yep. since 1968 <laughs> exactly it's a freak out man just accept it <laughs> I was very yeah, and it's 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 just it's it's fascinating. Just that whole sequence is just so. Um, it's exactly it's exactly how I would picture kind of like uh, your alter, the altering of a mind. You know, oh yeah, you know, as much as uh, people would uh, drop acid and go see this or you know whatever they would do, uh, it's that it's that expansion of the mind as you see things that you can't comprehend fully or understand that travel through that space gate is uh is it's just astounding to watch yeah yeah i mean the visuals the light show the i mean it's still it is still absolutely extraordinary and of course we're in a era where computer graphics and you know uh you know, screensavers and just really mundane stuff like that has been around for really decades now, but it's still such an incredible, wonderful experience to just see these amazing colors just zooming at you across the screen, and and then the intercuts of the, you know, twisted anguish and uh, you know literal mind blowing of the astronaut of Dave in his helmet with the lights bouncing off it and his face all contorted mm. from time to time is just like you just sort of get this sense of of absolute overload and and mind expansion and you're right and it and it really is of its era i mean you know i you know the whole psychedelic thing the the you know consciousness expansion the um the enlargement of boundaries across so many different realms you know, not like everything from 1964 before that was just <laughs> cloaked in darkness, but there was just something <laughs> that really erupted in that mid-60s, and I think that's just one of the things I love so much about this film is that, you know, Stanley Kubrick is one of the great artists of the 20th century. Uh, this is what he was doing during that whole sort of 65 through 68 period, which was such a fertile... Um, uprising and, and explosion of, of so many significant cultural landmarks. And this is, this is what he was doing during that era where, you know, the Beatles and so many other great artists were just, were really making amazing innovations. This is 
Kubrick's contribution to that very pivotal era, at least in my estimation. Um, and so, yeah, this that's that's another part of it. This is what made 2001 the ultimate trip, to quote one yeah. of its old Yeah, and he lines. claims that he never took acid and, and never really did any sort of mind-expanding drugs. And I don't think and he, he didn't yeah, and have I, to. I, it was I part of the atmosphere. Him, to be right? honest, yeah. And I, I, I think... I think the most impressive part of, of this sequence is how well it holds up both out of it, out of the context of the sort of, uh, you know, mind expanding, uh, psychedelic experiences of its era. Um, and, and in technology, as you mentioned, I mean, you look at some of those music videos from the eighties that used computer generated images, uh, to kind of try to achieve the same effect. And they are, much more dated than than these approaches here um you know this is closer in a lot of ways to something that brackage was doing or and and right because it was real light projection and it It was about film you know i mean i think it it, Mm -hmm. in in some ways this is almost as much a commentary on the watching of a movie and the ability to explore different worlds through the experience of watching a movie as it is about this one person's journey uh, or, or anybody's journey into space, you know, the, the idea of, of the, the reflection of this light on his helmet and on his eye, um, taking him to this other world and to, to, uh, to a, a higher level of, of consciousness and understanding is, uh, is as good a case for, for the experience of watching cinema as, as I, I can think of. Yeah, and it's and the way he frames it, it's it's not so much David Bowman's journey to this other world. It's our journey to this other world. Mm-hmm. We're in POV more than anything yeah. else in this whole entire film because this is you know going back to what we've been talking about. Uh, he's more concerned with uh, the yeah. audience's journey through. The Odyssey this, is definitely the audience. Uh, the audience's Odyssey, not, yeah. not Dave's. And this is. Yeah, this is our move into into this Nux realm, into this higher level of consciousness, into this concept. And then also kind of going back to your eroticizing of some of the things. Like after we've passed the kind of fractally type things, we move into that kind of miasma, like that cosmic soup of kind of of uh, fluid-like uh, textures that are happening. And there's like a section that, I mean, it totally looks like, uh, it totally looks like a, uh, sex ed video yeah. of like internal <laughs> right you know the things happening inside you know with the ejaculation and uh, and uh fertilizing an egg and there's lots of that symbols that are happening in this section as well which you know play into you know the uh the creation of, of a higher conscious the creation of a new being um and the creation of new life which we move into when we get to the end of this uh little uh uh, Stargate uh, Infinite Journey uh, section, and also the solarized landscapes, which is mm. kind of the creation of new worlds. Kind of throws yeah. us right back to the beginning, yeah. where we have these these yep. desert terrains. Now we're into another level of wilderness with all these completely wild color combinations, and 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 really kind of again a new plane of existence that's being explored on the material level as well. Yeah, and the way Dave's eye is shot, it's almost like a planet. Yeah. The way it solarizes or how. it. Um, yeah, exactly. And once again, a single eye experiencing yeah. all this stuff and taking it in. So before we get to the uh, the the room and the and the star baby, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. 
I want to ask you guys what you think about just in general um, the idea of a answer to this movie and kind of what people I think I know what your <laughs> your your thoughts are on this because um, I you know I think I think we've been talking about it a lot but I think I'm I'm curious about you know the this is really where the the deep relationship with Kubrick Kubrick's films begins you, you know the the sort of conspiracy theories or the 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 fan the fan fiction or fan favorite like uh, theories uh, go into detail for thousands of words about exactly what Kubrick was intending uh, so I'm curious if you feel like there is a a correct answer to any of this or, or not, not necessarily. Cause I don't think you guys feel like there's a correct answer, but do you feel like that is worth pursuing? And do you feel like there is a Kubrick answer? Do you feel like he had answers um, and simply just wanted other people to draw their own conclusions? Um, or do you feel like he just kind of put this out there and hoped that people would, uh, would make of it what they will? Well, you know, since I've never been, and never will have the privilege of talking to Stanley in his living room <laughs> off to the side, you know. I, I don't think he ever really put a solution or an explanation out there, and I think because he didn't do that, I'll just go ahead and take it that he was more interested in raising questions and provoking thought than in, you know, declaring in some kind of you know, quasi-dogmatic way, this is the key to how the universe works. I don't think Kubrick... I mean, he 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 certainly had a, a degree of pride and confidence and and assertiveness in his own abilities, but I don't think he regarded himself as some sort of uh, you know cult leader or theologian or even a philosopher who had sort of a a systemic uh, interpretation of reality that others should you know pay heed to and and even follow in some kind of discipleship I, you know he yeah. he was an artist and so i don't think he was really trying to point us towards some key of knowledge that um mere mortals might lack or that yeah. somehow superseded the millennia of religion and philosophy that preceded the release of this film i guess let me put it this way does this ending would he would he want people to try to figure out what was intended with uh, with the bed, even on a personal level, what, what people can verbalize, or do you think that he wanted it purely to strike an emotional chord inside of people? I mean, the, uh, the, the apartment scene. Yeah. The, and, and like... the, the, both the, the room and the, the final moment of, of the, uh, of the, the star child. I, I agree with David. I think, I think Kubrick, uh, was more interested in in raising questions than he was in in uh, answering them. Um, in a lot of his other films, it's the same kind of the the concept, like let you kind of figure out. Uh, you know, it's that it's that idea of uh, being uh, using your intellect is less is more satisfying than having something spelled out for you, um, because if your curiosity is sated, then you stop looking and you stop asking questions. And I think leaving leaving us a little bit curious, uh, wondering that that helps us develop more questions. And I think that's that's what good uh, science fiction yeah. uh, should be doing, and that's what this movie is is definitely doing. It's 
it's leaving up so much room for interpretation that uh, it allows you to, I mean, even us to this day, uh, 50 years later, um, not 50 years, or is it yeah. 50 years? It this is. Year. This is the 50th yeah, anniversary. This is 50 year, right? Yeah, 50 years later, like still talking about this, the ending, and talking about the meanings and the feelings and the, the, the what it provokes in us individually um, is is a much greater testament than having the answer spelled out because uh you know i think he had an answer or he had a thought of what his answer would be um because i think that's a little bit in the book that him and arthur c clark wrote you know if you're to go into there the ending is a little more uh, spelled out for you yeah you know there is there is the sense of what what the goal is and the fact that the two of them struggled for a long time about the idea of what were we going to do about this alien like how yeah. how can we show this or how can we like what what are we going to do and the fact that kubrick is of a great enough uh, mind to say nothing we will do will ever be satisfying we have built this up for 2 hours Nothing we can do to end this movie will be satisfying to anyone. Someone will always be upset. And so to not to not show it, to not spell it out, leaves questions which allows us to make it a satisfying ending because the ending will be created in everyone's individual mind, which takes us back to our you know, the the point of view and what he's trying to do, which is to take the audience right. on a journey and not have the questions of a character in the film mm. answered, um, which I think is is more potent and which makes it more universal and which makes it timeless, which, me, you know, we can watch it today and still have those same questions raised. Um, I, I feel, you know, with the exception of some of the name brands, um, I feel no age in this film. Sure, some of the some of the looks and the clothing had, you know, rings of like late yeah. 60s kind of like pop but for the most part like everything else like the you know the technology the filmmaking techniques the questions it's asking um the relation between humanity and uh and uh, destruction and death and the future and our own mortality all those things still ring true as topics and things that we think about and talk about and discuss and so, uh, you know, I mean, I have theories of what I think the ending means. Well, let's let's but that's let's find, great let's find that's... some theories here. <laughs> we've we've all, all right. gone on this. Uh, we've we, the three of us have been on a long <laughs> journey here to get to this room. Yes. Uh, what do you <laughs> what do you guys uh, how do you, uh, how do you guys feel about this sequence and uh, and sort of um, particularly the 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 room and what happens in inside the room let's start with david well okay i I, okay i'll go for it okay so basically what you have is uh dave he has you know crossed the threshold into the infinite and uh he's been greeted by you know those kind of twirling geometric shapes i guess those are the aliens and i and Mm. i mean i think that's that's discernible that they're not just random shapes or blobs or or there there's there there's some kind of a presence there and the way they spin around yeah. and the the way they kind of have their own distinct placement um in this 
crazy, you know, psychedelic landscape, says these these are the intelligences because they have they have shape, they have geometry and dimension to them. So this that's Dave's encounter, uh, our encounter, if you will, with this next level of intelligence. And so they've created this comfortable environment. They've sort of scanned his brain and said, okay, we're gonna help you relax. We're going to meet your sort of bio psycho needs not social needs because he's still in isolation but they're revealing to him kind of uh, the 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 reality of time so he's viewing himself in kind of a fourth dimension he's seeing his future self from the perspective of his of his past self and so he's kind of transitioning through the stages of of his own mortal existence and it, it culminates then in this final encounter with the monolith which you know the blankness of that of that form of that shape uh is kind of that mirror in which he regards himself and is kind of reborn and that's the star child that is kind of that next level of his individual evolution as well as his Mm. special uh, evolution you know special if you want to use the word but but you know he is a the representative of humanity that is now been kicked into a third stage uh, just as the the original revelation of the monolith uh elevated the proto-humans into this what turns out to be a middling state of humanity into uh, a superhumanity. and again you know the the theme music uh, thus spake zarathustra nietzsche the superman and all of that uh I, you know that that theme we really haven't talked about th- that, those three notes and how the thing is just so still just spine tingling yeah. goosebump inducing incredible music and you know yeah we've we've used the word ballsy but i mean what an amazing way to start a movie just by just kind of blasting to the audience you know just check this out motherfuckers <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and he puts he puts a stanley kubrick yeah. production like right where the monolith right goes. when that big burst <laughs> Exactly, and and so and and you know we we get three three renditions of that, and and in this culminating moment is just like, just overpowering, and and so yeah, it, it's I guess I guess that's kind of my summation of it. It's just you know taking humanity to the next level in this kind of you know broad scale cosmic uh, plane, but it's also on an individual level. It it sort of takes you into a new degree of self-awareness i mean i'm not saying this movie will make your life better by just watching it but it but it triggers thoughts i mean i guess that's one of my bonds with this film is that it it awoke in me even as a child and as as i've revisited numerous times over the years this just appreciation of, of what life is and what an opportunity it represents and and you know it's still scary and uncertain and you don't ultimately exactly know where it's going or what its meaning or value even are but you you recognize the gift for what it is and you try to you know have a new respect and reverence for it uh, that's what this movie does for me it just kind of gets me to sort of reassess where am i at right now and where is this going and am i doing the best i can am i you know, <laughs> by uh, putting myself to the fullest possible use, which is all that any conscious entity can have expected of it, <laughs> or whatever. I'm fumbling my quote there, but you know that's that's Hal's mission, and I guess that's mine yeah. as well. What do you think, Travis? Yeah, that's well. It's you know, uh, 
my interpretation has changed, you know, throughout the years, but um, I really, I really see it as, uh, you know, it's a fr it's a it's a fracture of time uh, you know if they have the ability to uh, traverse time and space if they're able to plant something four million years ago and then also visit the dawn of man I think they also have uh, the ability to fracture time as well as space you know there's a that that idea that that star portal is like a wormhole this uh, this gate between two worlds and that's also uh, uh, movement through time as well as space and when Dave is uh, in that room and you see him seeing himself it's 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 that's where uh, time is playing a part of this he sees himself in the future and then we move into that perspective and he sees himself in the future and we move to that perspective and once again we have that moment where he's eating and he knocks that glass right. off the off the counter, and to me, that's uh, you know, there's there's two things that kind of stick out. Is one is that you know he realizes that he's an empty vessel, that there's something greater for him to 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 let go of, and that's once you know, and that's also to let go of all the material things. You know, he's in this opulence and he's in this like comfort. And it's only then that he realizes that, you know, by letting go of all this, this stuff that humanity has provided, by letting go of all this technology and all this comfort and all this wealth and all this material items, that he's able to finally see the monolith again. Uh, and that's in at his death. And he reaches out to touch it, just like everyone else has reached out to touch it to change into the next step in evolution. And it is there that he finally um, is able to uh, progress and he's reborn. Um, but then, you know, him going back to visit Earth, I've never seen 2010 and I've never watched 2010, the year we made contact. Uh, I don't know anything about that movie. But uh, in my interpretation of this is dave is almost going back to start humanity like it's that fracture of time he's going back in time and he is the mm. thing that starts that planet you know he is he is the first the first man which then creates humanity it's almost like uh it's a big time loop it's circular just like everything else in this movie has been circular dave goes back as the star child to be the fertile birth of our humanity which starts again at the dawn of man and continues forward it's a big it's a big circle to me uh and that's what that's how i always looked at it i i know that there's this is, david you saw 2010 is the star baby floating above the earth and we try to make contact with it? Is that what no, goes on? No, no. I mean, <laughs> I I may have missed it, but I was so incredibly crushed. I, I actually got the DVD at a library clearance sale for like $2 recently. And so I thought, well, what a perfect occasion to check it out. And it's like, I mean, maybe I'm just in a different place, but I'll just say it's awful. <laughs> it's really, I've, it's really I've disappointing, heard. and 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 it's because it's really more of an Arthur C. Clarke film, and Kubrick, of course, had nothing to do with it. It is the only Kubrick film that actually has a sequel, yeah. <laughs> so there's yeah. that distinction. But it really, uh, to me, I cannot consider it canon. I mean, you know, Cure Delay is no. is in it, and it does build on some concepts, but it's 
you know, and and maybe as a standalone sci-fi film, if it didn't have the uh, connection, it might be okay. But you know, it's it's an '80s film uh, in the worst sense of the word, and it's just it 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 sentimentalizes Hal. It just makes a lot of mistakes and and things mm. that I don't think are worthy of association with 2001: A Space Odyssey. I'll, oh. That's my blunt, short take on it. But I, I think that's an important I, lesson I've for well by not for everybody it. complaining about sequels these days and how they ruin the originals. You know, I think mm-hmm. thirty years later, there's not many people talking about 2010. Uh, you know, it took me years after watching this movie the first time to even be aware that there was a sequel. Um, so the you know the good stuff rises to the top and the bad stuff uh, sinks down. I mean, I think both of yeah. your um, your interpretations are uh, are uh, really uh, fascinating and valuable, and so I think I'll I'll just leave it at that because I I uh, I I love talking about this movie as um, everybody is now aware as we're as we're heading into uh, <laughs> the the depths of this conversation. Um, but I also think that there's a, an enormous amount of value in simply experiencing it, and um, oh and yeah, the, the process oh, of sure. of experiencing it this time. Uh, was just as meaningful to me uh, as the the last time that I watched it, um, and and I th- also think that uh, your points about about 2010 is a good segue into kind of talking about the way that this movie was received really briefly, um, because I think it's fascinating that it, it was definitely sort of mixed reviews. the The highest profile critics of the time, for the most part, uh, gave it pretty pretty mediocre reviews um praising sort of the technical elements of it but but little else um and yet you know it was this this massive success and it was hugely popular um and that uh that reputation has has completely reversed over the years um to the point this is now um in the top five sight and sound it's number two on the director's list uh right behind tokyo story for the best movie ever made um and uh it's always fun to read half star reviews of this film <laughs> um and hate from, mail from too people I on letterbox yeah, right, or right. um you know uh <laughs> oh, you know man. elsewhere on the internet um amazon and all that kind of stuff um because obviously this film's reputation um precedes it so people go in um expecting something significant and if they don't get what they expect uh they're quite angry about it um, <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious to know if you guys have any thoughts on the, just the idea that this movie, um, could have been successful, um, in the sort of mainstream and how that, um, how that impacts kind of how it's received today and today's film landscape, um, particularly in the wake of movie of movies that have been influenced by star Wars, which was obviously directly influenced by this, um, and essentially changed uh, the way movies have been made over the last 40 years. Well, to me, this feels like a very uncompromised film. I mean, there's, there's, you know, while we've talked a little bit about some of the entertainment value, it's not like Kubrick, you know, conceded anything that was outside of what you'd consider you know, artistic integrity in order to make a crowd pleaser. I mean, this is a this is an incredibly challenging film. It's it is, um, 
it's a film that respects the intelligence of its audience and and the fact that it will also leave a significant number of viewers behind who just either don't get it or don't find it quite you know uh, entertaining enough to hold their attention uh, and of course you can level all of the accusations of pomp and pretension and self-absorption i mean you know i'm of the view that you can make a, a negative take on just about any work of art you know i mean there's no objectively great art out there that you know every viewer is going to have a equally high regard for and yeah you you can make the uh case that this film is overblown or you know uh, unsatisfying on different levels but you know you'll never convince me you know to to buy into that but I, you know, you don't. Yeah, I'm not saying if you don't like this film, you're not an intelligent person, or that you don't know how to watch movies or anything like that. Um, I think because it is so hyped up, and because it is uh, has such a lofty reputation, that it does set people up for some kind of disappointment if it doesn't ex- succeed. I mean, Tokyo Story, you know, which is a completely different type of movie has had the same effect once you see it praised to such a high regard uh and then you watch it and it's like you know it's just a family with some problems like what's the big deal <laughs> you know yeah. and and so you 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 know you you have to sort of step back and and view it in context and then recognize the, the um you know the the planning and the deliberation that went into making the movie the way it is and and the way it was put together and, you know, the historic context and all those other things, too, kind of help. So, you know, yeah, this isn't a movie that's for everybody. It's not going to be the universal crowd pleaser. Um, it doesn't have to be. That's not at all what Kubrick had in mind. And I think it is a film that might have a hard time being made in the current context because, you know, crowdsourcing and, and uh, uh, focus grouping and, and franchising are such a, you know, major consideration to get the kind of funding that a film of this sort would have needed and did need back then. But, you know, Kubrick had purchased his ticket with uh, with making some pretty popular films, going back to Spartacus and Paths of Glory. But, of course, Strange Love was a pretty big sensation because, again, he tapped into a vein and, and bought himself some capital and seize the moment. I mean, that's the thing. That that's just what's so great about this is that, you know, he had an opportunity to do something that had never been done before. The uh, as they put it, the proverbial quality sci-fi movie, and uh, he pulled out all the stops and succeeded spectacularly. Created a, an amazing legacy for the technology of filmmaking, and uh, and told a story uh, that. It just continues to sail at, at unprecedented heights of challenging audiences, but but winning sort of new converts and and impressing people uh, that you know were born well well after it was made. It's a touchstone now, and it's it's an all time great. Yeah, that's I think that's wonderfully put. I think there's nothing to add to that kind of. Uh, that kind of statement except that i'm always surprised that people are surprised that thought-provoking challenging fair is something that is well responded to sometimes by the audience that always amazes me because it happens time and time again 
oh, look at this thought-provoking, challenging film that everyone is responding well to and going to in droves. They don't say, let's make more of this. They say, what an oddity. Let's go back (laughs) to doing the stuff we know. Right. Because we don't want to take those chances. And this is, you know, uh, when David was talking earlier about this being a perfect representation about the time period that it came from with all its hopes and dreams and aspirations and colors and expansion of the mind and uh, the challenges that the people at the time were facing with the Cold War. And like this is a perfect encapsulation of that uh, that moment in history and 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 the uh, consciousness of the people that were experiencing at the time. Um, it they don't it's a it, it, it's what makes it universal and makes it something that can be seen time and time again. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, really really eloquently put, David. I, I agree. I feel like uh, that that's a that's a good cap on the uh, on the discussion. We can uh, we can try to rank this thing. Do you, are you guys ready, or do you have any <laughs> any final words before we move on? I, I, I'm I'm very curious to know where David's going to put it on the in the in the Kubrick scale. <laughs> well, you know, well, let me let me give you a spoiler. It's it's number one. <laughs> um, do you before we before we get to our rankings? Do you do you have a, a yeah. second favorite Kubrick film? Oh, I'll prob. I mean, it it, it does fluctuate. And I, I've I've listened to your guys' conversations, and I know it's only going to get thornier from here. I'll probably go yes. with Doctor Strangelove as number two for right now. But you know, I, I only because that's probably the the film I've watched the second most after two thousand one, and because I just completely dig the way it skewers that you know Cold War paranoid mentality that you know it was a very. Uh, present uh influence in my family and my upbringing and uh, it's just hilarious but i mean i i really love so many of, of kubrick's films and i imagine i'll probably just continue to inhabit them and explore them in other ways it will fluctuate my rankings but i guess i'll go with uh, with the good doctor as number two uh paths of glory three um but you know i, I mean i have a lot of fondness for the shining um uh, full metal jacket Clockwork, you know, I, I, there's just a lot of disturbing stuff there that makes it hard for me to fully embrace it. Barry Lyndon is probably the one that I, I probably have the, the more deeper acquaintance to really make. And same with Eyes Wide Shut. Those are two films that I've seen them. I dig them. I appreciate them. But I really haven't, like, sunk into them for just time purposes and other things that I've been doing. So, you know, that this one's my baby here. And I'm, I'm the star child of, <laughs> in my own mind anyways. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, you know, there will never be another film like uh, 2001 as far as my own journey beyond the stars is concerned. All right, Travis. Let's hear it. All right. Well, did a lot of soul searching. Uh, after, after last episode, you know, we've had a lot of time off. Like Kubrick between... The Doctor Strange love in this movie. We we took a quite a bit yeah. of time off, uh, part partly due to my uh, my schedule. But uh, uh, so we'll go back. Fear and Desire is my lowest of his movies. We'll go in order, just like I do every every time. Uh, still, uh, Lolita Lolita's down there, man. I can't uh, I can't connect with the uh, the content. I I just can't do it. Uh, Killer's Kiss, Spartacus, The Killing. Last time I ranked Doctor Strangelove above Paths of Glory. This time, Doctor Strangelove then oh, Paths, interesting. Paths of Glory Reversal. has moved back up. 
yeah, the more the more I think about it, the more I thought about it, and the more I think about the movie, uh, it's you know, it's it's more successful in what it's trying to do to me as a uh, as a singular person watching experiencing that film. And I think about that movie a lot, so I had to bump it back up. I had to correct correct a mistake. Um, and then 2001 is at the top of my list right now. Um, it is it's a it's a pure expression, and it is a singular vision uh, enacted by a person who would not settle for anything less than perfection in what he was trying to do, from his uh, creating technical aspects to be able to make the movie, um, you know, inventing new things to be able to tell his story to just its universal themes of kind of like wanting uh, something more, looking for answers, looking to find yourself, looking to expand and to grow. Um, and the fact that, you know, it, with, with the exception of the fact that uh, they asked for someone's Christian name at the beginning of the film, uh, there is no talk of religion because you can easily put any faith within this film and have it be a different sort of journey and I think that also is what I've used the word a million times uh, hyperbolically you know, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it becomes a universal story in that sense because he allows us to be the center of the journey and that's what makes this movie just so compelling um, the visuals the structure and his willingness to treat us like human human beings with brains to be able to figure and puzzle and search for our own answers is what makes this movie just so amazing. That and it gave us David Bowie, which uh, you know, without David Bo without David Bowman and his space odyssey and David Bowie who uh, aped that into his yeah. space oddity, um, you know. We also got that as a as a little sidebar, so uh, you know, got to give him that one too. So, I uh, I always kind of had this uh, distant relationship with this movie. Um, it it almost I almost didn't even think of it as a movie. I just thought of it as this experience that I had once every mm. decade or so, <laughs> um, and. It, it almost became like the black monolith to me, you know, <laughs> this very mysterious distant thing <laughs> that every time I, I passed by it or it appeared in front of me, I was in awe, but I couldn't quite process the, the kind of filmmaking of it, put it in context with everything going into this season. I, I probably would have said that there were three or four, probably three Kubrick movies that um, I would put above this film um always thought of it as a classic amazing experience etc etc yada yada all the all the nice things people say about it um but it just never really had that same sort of personal level connection to me um as a movie watcher um this time i was completely bowled over by it and um immediately thought of you david uh because um <laughs> i totally get everything that you <laughs> have said about this film over the years um it's it's unlike uh really any other film in history and uh it's it's really uh something 
quite special. Um, I, I think there's only one movie left in that, that we have yet to watch that I think would have the chance of, of passing this in my ranking. Um, this is definitely my number one. Uh, my number two is uh, Paths of Glory. Um, I have the same order now as you uh, for my top three. So I have Strange Love and three, Paths of Glory two. But 2001 is a very, very, very high number one, well above Paths of Glory, which is interesting to me because um, I have, uh, I, I, every year I put together like a top 100 favorite movies just to kind of see the progression of my taste. And I looked back at my list from this year um, at, after watching this movie, and this movie is not on it. I have three Kubrick films on it, and I had not put 2001, um, perhaps just because I hadn't visited it in so long. And this revisit really um, uh, showed me just how beautiful of an experience it can be to watch this movie. Um, fortunately, I feel like I have the TV now that I can enjoy it at least somewhat the way it was meant to be seen like on a bigger screen so that i can immerse myself yeah. in it and the surround sound yeah. i mean hopefully you got a good sound bar or whatever because the, the 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 sensory experience of this film really is something definitely quite tangible it's it's not just the ideas it's putting across it is that immersive enveloping yeah you know immersion you know that that oh, we yeah. have of, of the music the images and, and how it affects our senses on so many different levels. And because of the way this film was shot and, uh, you know, intended to be screened, and it wasn't shown very often after its, uh, uh, was after its initial run for a while. It was kind of hard to see, and then they started showing it again regularly in repertory. But I, I think this film gets hurt, or got hurt for 20 to 30 years by the experience of watching this on a 30-inch or smaller television mm. set um because it is uh it, it it makes the uh the process uh more of a chore i think and and i think part of the reputation that it's gotten is from people who have not f had the experience as it was meant to be experienced um the, the, the last yeah. the last time i saw this was at the egyptian in los angeles and that was a a, a, a certainly one of the great movie going experiences uh, of my life um but again, it felt so singular, and I feel like this this visit felt warmer to me. It felt more like a, mm. a you know a human experience that I was sort of making a connection with an artist um, that it wasn't just made without the use of hands. And I see the hands more now, but not in the the way that they are moving strings behind the scenes. I see them in the passion that was put into what ends up on screen. Mm. And I think that aspect yeah. of it was what was most moving for me in this experience. And, um, and that made the, the film, um, mean more to me on a personal level. And, and I, I am, I am genuinely awed by it now. That's fantastic, man. I'm, that's, that's great that you're able to, uh, uh, fully appreciate it. I think that's, right there that's the case for uh people who like don't get films like i don't get it uh that's the, that's the perfect case for just watch it again and again like just there's things that grow and change as you grow and change and things that people might find to be 
unapproachable or unattainable in terms of comprehension. Uh, those are things that change as you change, and and I think that's that's a testament right there. That's absolutely that's awesome. yeah yeah. And um, I, I mean, there's a lot of reviews too of this movie by by just viewers um, saying, you know, I love Kubrick, but this movie was just boring, and okay. you know, that's that's fine. If you were bored, you were bored. There's not really anything that you can say to that. But I will say, if you love Kubrick, this it's the same person that made this movie. And yep. he was talking about a lot of the same things, um, but he was telling you, telling it to you in a different way. And I think trying, with, again, trying to approach that, to think about that, to think, okay, I know this person produces art that I love, that I can appreciate. He produced this as well. What is that? what does that mean? What, what can I do to open myself up to this new experience that he wanted to provide to people? Um, I think it's a very important step for any movie watcher. And going off of what you said about the, uh, how this experience was hurt by watching it on a small screen for so long, uh, this, this film, uh, once, uh, once it started being shown on television, this was the reason why Kubrick stopped making movies mm. on widescreen. Once he saw how compromised and damaged uh, his vision was on the small screen uh, after this movie, everything's in uh, everything's in standard uh, four four. Uh, excuse me, four four. That's film. That's a music. But everything's <laughs> four, in standard three, yeah. four three. It's mm. in uh, yeah. It's just in square after this because. He never wanted to have his vision compromised again, no matter what platform it was shown on. All right. Well, David, thank you for this uh, mammoth uh, favor of, <laughs> yes, David. of seeing us through well, to the final you know, end I of am, this journey. I'm so delighted and so thankful that you guys gave me the opportunity to do this. I mean, like I said, I did my commentary track, and I've spoken about this film in other places, but this was a wonderful opportunity just to sort of put it all out there and to share it with hopefully people who uh you know get the movie on the same level as we did i really enjoyed hearing you guys insights as well so thanks again for having me on oh thank you very much for taking time to talk about it and uh what i didn't mention at the head of the show but your commentary of the film is is absolutely fantastic i've listened to it (laughs) twice oh thank Uh, you that's (laughs) once just once just in car rides to work and another time in preparation for this show because i I really liked your thoughts and insights and how you personally connected with the film. And that's something I always strive for in watching a film is my own personal connection. And uh, hearing you speak so eloquently about your personal connection with the film was, uh, is wonderful to hear. So thank you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. So next time uh, we are staying in the sci-fi realm, uh, but it's going to be a very different experience. Uh, it's a little grimy. A little grimy. Yeah. A little bit more <laughs> down and dirty. <laughs> Yeah, if 2001 is uh, the encapsulation of the spirit of the 60s, the 70s yeah. suck. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it was only, it was only a few oh. months after 2001 that I think a lot of people came down to earth uh, after this, the release of this oh, yeah. film. So, oh, yeah. Uh, Clockwork Orange. Um, yeah, so what do, you, what, do you, what do you think of the 70s, Travis? <laughs> I think... Uh, you know, we're going to get our uh, ultraviolence on and uh, video well, my brother's video well. All right, I'm going to have a big ju- big glass of milk. I'll be listening. Guys. All right. Wish you all the best. See as you, you next week, Travis. Yep, complete for another week. <laughs>